the single sport athlete conversation, we are actually damaging our children. I'm going to say it that aggressively. Um, we are not offering them the affordances, opportunities to practice, to develop all of the essential primitive movement programs that they're going to require to be a fully functioning adult, let alone an elite athlete. So for me, kids should play and they should play a variety of sports. They should have hand-eye coordination. They should have foot-eye coordination. They should have body awareness. That was manual osteopath, sports scientist, and kinesiologist, James Wendland. And you are listening to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Padolin. Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolin, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolin, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there and welcome back or welcome to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Padolin. I am your host, Jason Padolin. And today is pretty fun because we're going a little bit off the beaten track here with what you're normally used to with Up My Hockey. Uh, so you got to buckle up uh, because there is going to be a lot of information thrown at you, but it's all really intriguing stuff. So um yeah, I mean, if you're a hockey player, for sure, listen to this, especially to the later parts where we start talking about training and uh, sport specif specificity. There's a big word for me to spit out uh, versus multi-sport. So athleticism in general versus just sticking to your single sport, how to train properly for a hockey player, uh, their uh, rest time uh, as for a hockey player. There's lots of stuff in there dedicated to hockey players. Uh, but also for the sports parent here or the hockey parent, uh, the beginning of this, probably the first 30 to 40 minutes, uh, and this is also good for players too, but we talk about concussions and what James has seen throughout his practice throughout the, you know, throughout the science that is behind this and how he treats athletes to recover uh, from what many think are concussions, but actually aren't concussions. So we talk about that concussion, um, actual concussions versus concussion-like symptoms and how they vary and how when you can think you have a concussion, uh, you can behave uh, and, and try to recover the best you can when really there is some manual therapy to get you back in alignment that will actually take care of your symptoms and you will be all systems go. I have a firsthand experience with this, which I shared during this episode. So this is a really interesting part, talking about the concussion side, because uh, James definitely feels that concussions are overdiagnosed now, and uh, and we need to understand uh, what the situation is a little bit better in the landscape so we can get our kids back to playing faster. Um, so yeah, lots of good stuff here. James is an absolute, he, he's, he's a Goliath of, of information. He uses words fast and quick and they're big and he knows how to talk. And I do my best to slow him down and to, uh, relay it in a little bit, maybe easier to understand, um, types of, uh, you know, subject matter. So stick with it, like stick with it. I, I don't think it's hard. Like I, I did do this interview live in my Facebook group 
And I got some amazing feedback from this, uh, from this interview, from this conversation. Uh, I think it's compelling. Like I said, it is pretty fast paced. Sometimes there's, uh, there's some, there's some medical uh, terminology that's thrown around, but stick with it. We break it down. I think it's uh, it's consumable and it's digestible and you'll get it. And there's a lot that you can apply to your athlete and athletes out there um, that are listening. My goodness, take care of your feet. There's a little heads up about something we're going to talk about. Uh, feet are so important. Your balance, your body awareness, all these things are super important. We're going to talk about that during this episode. Uh, so yeah, lots of lots of good stuff. Uh, sometimes when we're trying to keep up with the Joneses, as they call it, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice. Uh, one of the things I do with athletes is uh, helping them understand what their personal operating manual is. I do believe everyone uh, operates differently. Everyone needs a little bit more downtime. Some guys need less. Uh, building a routine in for you as a hockey player to be your best in season and out of season is an absolute must. Uh, so you got to be curious about what's out there. And this is one of those episodes where if you are curious about what's out there, you will find some gems here about how to move forward and make yourself a better hockey player and a better athlete. So without further ado, because this is a long one, you got to buckle up. Um, you're in for a long ride here uh, with Dr. Uh, well, not doctor. That's the wrong word. James James Wendland, manual osteopath, sports scientist, and kinesiologist. He specializes in hockey-specific um, athletes. Uh, he does see everyone. He does have a general practice, but he loves working with hockey players, goalies specifically. He works a lot with goalies. And uh, you are going to hear a ton of good stuff here uh, over the next uh, probably two hours, hour and 20 minutes. So without further ado, let's bring you Mr. James Wedland. All right, so here we are live at the Up My Hockey podcast studio with James Wendland. And as we see scrolling across the screen, a manual osteopath, a sports scientist, and kinesiologist. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here and uh, excited to have a chat about a myriad of topics. Yeah, no kidding. Well, we've had enough uh, discussions offline. You know how curious I am about everything. So, um, and I thought, yeah, you'd just be an awesome guest just for my audience, you know, not only the players, but also I, I think the parents. There's a lot that we're going to touch on here um, that was obviously eye opening for me. And maybe, uh, well, no, let's not start there. Let's start with you because I want you to tell us, um, you know, why you're sitting in front of us now and, and, and why you're so passionate about stuff, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. For sure. So my journey started as an athlete as well. I mean, I was a youth national swimmer by the time I was 14. And then, you know, as my growth spurt came through, I went on to competitive rugby and ended up playing premier till the age of 32. And in my university years, I originally was going into me, I was going into environmental science and biological engineering. And then I took one course in sports science and I got lit up, found my passion and, started that journey and it led to undergraduate and graduate degrees in uh, exercise phys and kinesiology and then from there i leaped into the hockey world um, spent time doing preseason evaluation for the canucks uh, worked with a bunch of different teams i've been the trainer on the bench um, from oh ubc football as a head trainer ubc rugby head trainer um, major midgets i've been the traveling trainer with the major midget leagues uh traveling on a bus to prince george listening to mighty ducks too many times <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, I've been around a myriad of level and nowadays, um, mainly pro guys, I do have some dub and junior A boys that, uh, that I slotted when I have time. Um, but yeah, I teach in Austin, in the osteopathy college, uh, I've taught at university for seven years, courses in human growth and development, motor learning, motor behavior, strength and conditioning, exercise prescription, 
spent a year dissecting live bodies when I was in graduate school. Um, so I've seen the human frame from the outside. I've cut it up, chopped it up, diced it. I've treated it. I've bent it. I've straightened it. I've crooked it. Um, throughout the years, I've just made enough mistakes to be sitting here with a bit of advice. Yeah, awesome. So an athlete first, which I think is important. Um, at least in my book, it is. I think understanding how a body moves, you know, is is uh, is part of it too. From a from a personal experience level, but the the one thing I want to ask you, because um, I'm not sure how educated people are. I know I wasn't, and actually still wish I was a little bit more educated on it. But like, what an osteopath even is? Like, there was two years ago or three years ago, I think, when I was exposed to one for the first time, I had to look it up, and it was actually. Um, for me, super enlightening. So I'm like, well, this is the way it should be. Like, uh, uh, as far as uh, what my understanding was, it was. Can you explain for us maybe what an osteopath is for those uh, who aren't familiar? Sure thing. So I'm what's called a manual osteopathic practitioner. So we approach the body as a whole unit. So the foundations of what we do is we look at the body from the model of a geodesic dome, um, which involves tensegrity. So we view the body as a complete functioning unit. We believe the body has the capability to heal itself if you if you get it out of its own way. Um, but we we also treat the body through three primary unities. Um, and when you attack it or, or, or sort of work with it in that frame, you're never looking for the symptom. People come in all the time and they tell me, oh, my shoulder hurts. Well, okay, could be shoulder pain, could be if it's the right shoulder, liver, left shoulder, heart, uh, could be visceral, who knows. Um, we're always looking for what the actual root cause is. So as an osteopath, we treat through five disciplines. So we've got Osteoarticulations, which is sort of the, the adjustments of what a chiropractor would do, but we don't thrust. Uh, we go to level four pressure, um, but we don't go to level five where it's that thrust and crack. Most of the times we can get stuff down with level two, level three pressure. Um, we have advanced myofascial techniques, which is kind of what an RMT would bring in some ways, um, but we don't, we don't slide and glide. We do very specific fascial work. Uh, we work on the viscera. So we have uh, visceral manipulation. Your organs can actually cause torsions in your body. For example, your sigmoid colon, which is kind of the last stop before things exit the bus, um, it has two fascial attachments in front and one in the back right above your left SI joint. So if you have IBS, constipation, if you're a goalie and stressed out, um, they can actually pull out your left SI joint. So sometimes it's a visceral link. Uh, there's craniosacral therapy. A lot of people don't realize your skull actually moves. It expands and contracts in relation to the production of cerebral spinal fluid um, from the third and fourth ventricle. So we were we work in trying to treat those lesions or any sort of limitations, specifically through the the occiput or base of the skull, and that will lead us into some concussion, concussion talk a bit later. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times, it's that blockage at the foramen magnum, the base of the skull, that causes issues. And then you know, finally, we have manual lymphatic drainage. Now, I'll do that on an acute basis. There's other people that really love lymphatic work. Um, I don't want to brisk people for an hour, is what I would say. So I tend to refer out unless it's acute and acute swelling. Then I get in there and just clear the pathway to immediately get rid of that. Um, so it's kind of what an osteopath does. We treat you as a whole. We minimum hour on the table where we're working with you. you we, we look at you, we assess you, we put you on the table, we make some corrections, fix some things, get you walking around, moving again, have another look, see what's changed, see what's stuck, do it again. Um, so I'm, my sessions are generally 60 to 90 minutes long. Um, and I, I'm, it's hard for us an osteo because we're in such demand that you tend to treat eight to 10 hours every day. All right. Interesting. Really interesting. I mean, I, I guess for the layman out there, I mean, I understand it as yes, like you are when you kind of hit it best. I think when you were saying it's not, we're so used to having somebody like look at our shoulder because our shoulder hurts and that's what they're treating, right? I mean, then I guess that's traditional physiotherapy, whereas you are trying to find uh, the other, like as you called it, the root cause. And 
And yeah, that's been my experience is like I have walked in with something and, and all of a sudden they're working on my back, which is a mile away from where I think that I'm that I'm sore. But yet I walk out feeling a heck of a lot better than I than I did. And they never actually touched the, the point of uh, of pain. Right. So I, I think that's super cool. I do think the body does has the ability to heal itself, too, just from my own innate kind of feeling about it. So I like the philosophy of it and it seems to definitely work. Um, can we, can you just walk through, so you do have a general practice cause I know that I have referred some you know, younger players to you, uh, you know, that you'll take on new clients, but as you said, you, you, it seems like your, your home base or like who you work with the most with is actually hockey players. Is that, is that correct? That's very correct. I mean, I, I specialized into hockey starting back in 2000 and it's never let me go is what I would say. Um, I, it always seems to cling back on to me. Just when I think I'm going to, you know, I might retire and move on, all of a sudden something else comes back. So, yeah, uh, it is. I'm in Kelowna, uh, Kelowna-based. I have a private uh, training studio with a treatment room. Um, it's only for the clients that I'm working with because uh, I truly believe once you've set somebody's alignments and done the adjustments, you have to resynapticize them. You have to reprogram them neurologically, which is why I have a gym setting because I walk through some fundamental or what we call primitive movement patterns, getting the body to actually adopt the alignments right away. Because ultimately, I'm chasing what I call a sticky treatment. Um, I want somebody fixed and better in three to five sessions, no more. Uh, it, it, I would argue it this way: if you're if you're a great practitioner, it's three to five. You, you don't. There's no such thing as maintenance. You don't need to see somebody twice a year, or twice a week for a year to to kind of cling on to it. I have some challenges with that that type of practice because I'm going to ask what they're actually doing in in their their five, ten, thirty minute session if they're seeing you twice a week. Because the challenge I would have is. I doubt a practitioner would take their car to a mechanic twice a week for a year if it wasn't getting better. Um, but yet we as human beings seem to think that's the normal way. And it goes back to that symptom versus root cause. You can come in with a tight adductor and somebody might IMS it. Well, you got to ask yourself, why is the adductor guarding? Why is it tightening? It's tensioning for a reason. I mean, your muscles, your connective tissue, your fascia, we call that continuous tension in my world under that sort of tensegrity or geodesic dome model. And it's the muscles, fascia, and connective tissue that are ultimately creating all the issues that we have. If I just look at the bones by themselves, bones are like the poles from a dome tent. If I assemble them when I go camping and put them on the ground, they don't do a damn thing. right? But the second I slide them inside the fabric of the dome tent, that's like our muscles and our fascia and our connective tissue. Now they're transferring force. They're not creating it. They're simply transferring or applying it. So if I pull on one side of a dome tent, it has an equal and opposite effect on the other side of the dome tent. So I could pull the left side, and or sort of the right side, and somebody might look at the left side and say, oh, it's bent over here. And they might try and straighten that left side because it's bent over there. Well, the actual tensioning is over on the right. And a lot of people miss that simple scenario. It's, you know, the other scenario I'll say is, from our world as an osteo, unity one is the pelvic girdle. It's, it's the, the iliac crest, or what we call the innominate bones, the sacrum, and then L5, L4. That's unity one. If that isn't set level and square, we don't look anywhere else. We don't go to the neck. We don't go to the shoulder. We start there. And there's a lot of practitioners that go to a neck right away. And it doesn't make any sense to me because the other analogy I would say is, well, how do you fix a crooked foundation by straightening the roof? Then it doesn't seem to make logical sense, but and that's where we get into that sort of repeated treatment, repeated patterning. Mm. Uh, that lands it kind of sort of unpacks a bit. What I generally say is we kind of sit between a physio and chiro um, in the sense of what we do. We have the muscle energy of the physio, the adjustments of the chiro, but then we mix in visceral, cranial, sacral, lymphatic, um, and a whole bunch of other good stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great. Uh, 
I guess analogies, uh, you know, as, as for, it helps me kind of figure out what, what, you, what you mean by that. And yeah, why would you keep going to the neck or up at, underneath the skull if, if everything's out of whack at the hips, right? That totally, totally does make sense. And maybe that's where we're starting because that's such a hot topic these days, like really to dig in. And, and that is with the, with the con concussion scenario, um, especially mm -hmm. with hockey players, you know, it's, uh, I'll set the stage a little bit, I guess, you know, as we've seen, and I was part of it, you know, the, the, the kids that don't know, or we didn't know any better. So sometimes we didn't know, we didn't know. Right. So we, we were back on the ice too soon. We didn't know what a concussion was. We didn't know the long lasting effects and there was definitely concussions being had. Um, now it seems like everything is a concussion. If you have a headache or if you have anything else, every time you take a hit and now you, there's all these return to play and which is obviously in the athlete's best interest. We want to keep everybody safe. Uh, but we've had these discussions offline that perhaps they're being overdiagnosed. Um, and that was how James and I came actually together. My, my son Hudson, and I think it's worth telling the story, had had experienced uh, three, we thought, concussions in his first year of hitting in U15. So, I mean, all the listeners out there that know that that's a big transition year where you go from no contact to contact. You're also the smallest fish in the pool usually as, a, as an underage, so you're getting knocked around a little bit more. And, um, and Hudson experienced, uh, um, some hits and, and, uh, I'll even go a little bit deeper because the hits weren't necessarily things that they looked very traumatic to me. It looked like, you know, he had taken a hit where he didn't see someone coming. Yes, but didn't fall over. There was, he was definitely wasn't unconscious. It wasn't huge bangs into the boards necessarily, uh, but had like really severe concussion related symptoms. Like he wanted to be in the dark room. Like he couldn't have conversations. He, he was always with a headache. It didn't like bright light Had a hard time focusing, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like the list goes on that it definitely seemed like he had concussions. He was out for a month and a half. Uh, and we were worried as a family, of course, right? Like one about his health and two also about like, can he play this sport anymore? Right. Is he, is he concussion prone? And, um, Mr. Lyle Mast, who we know is a, who's a goaltending uh, uh, kind of uh, savant uh, around these parts. Uh, uh, I, I got in contact with him, who knew, knew James, and he said, go, go see James. So anyways, that's the prelude to walking into James's office, not knowing what we were going to do, or into his gym, I guess I should say. And, uh, and this is a true story. Hudson walked in with con very <laughs> like concussion symptoms that he's had for a while, and 90 minutes later, he walked out with nothing and hasn't to this day had anything since so as a parent one obviously super relieved um the kid super relieved right like and and again now i'll i'll pass the, the baton to you about and maybe just use hudson as an example since you know he, he it's who i brought like what you did to him and what was affecting him and why he was experiencing these things for sure he's a great example and you've actually sent me a couple more now since i saw one last week as well yeah um and it's the typical thing they've taken a slight knock um, and they have, and they've had a whiplash-based mechanism, right? There hasn't been major contact with the boards. They weren't run from behind where the head made contact, where I get like a coop contra coop mechanism. Um, but they did have a whiplash incident, um, kind of like a motor vehicle accident. Uh, and that tends to tension the neck right away. Um, and then when the neck has a whiplash, your spinal cord and brain is one continuous unit from inside the skull all the way down to the sacra. Um, and it's surrounded by the brain and the spinal cord is actually surrounded by dura matter, um, which is a continuous sheath in the skull and as it exits through the spinal column. That sheath or that tube goes all the way down to T12L1, where it splits into little finger-like projections called cauda aquana or horsehair in Latin. And those actually insert into S1, S2, your sacrum. So now 
when I have a whiplash mechanism and I get torsion that way, it can immediately rotate my sacrum mouth. So when Hudson came in, um, as long as when, as soon as I watched him walk, I mean, he was walking with one hip protruding forward. His head was actually sitting off like this to the side. And I, you know, I'm like, yeah, for sure. He may present with some concussion like symptoms, but if I tension the occiput, which is the base of the skull and C1, C2, it produces concussion-like symptoms. And the reason being is your top cervical vertebrae, C1, C2, or Atlas, because it holds up the world, and Axis, because it rotates on it, they actually interact with your inner ear through a little steloid process here that tensions it. And it tells your brain postural sway and equilibrium. That's, that's one of your major balance centers. There's three balance centers in the body. The first one's your feet which you guys never train properly. The second one's your back, all the paraspinals, most amount of muscle spindles or stretch receptors of any muscle in the body. And the third is the, the inner ear in C1, C2. When the sacrum's rotated, the spine doesn't stack properly. And I think this is where I'll start with it. If you imagine this is your sacrum here, it's a triangle at the back of your pelvic girdle, right between your butt cheeks, basically. If my sacrum turns this way, well, L5, the vertebrae, if it's an adaptive one, has to twist the opposite way. Well, if L5 and the rest of my lumbar spine go one way, my thoracic goes the other way, and then my cervical twists in compensation. Because what your central nervous system is doing, which is you and your body, is trying to keep your gaze stable and level. Two major balance centers, visual, spatial, vestibular. Visual, spatial, we see straight lines. Everywhere we go, we're correcting our body awareness to straight lines. It's why crooked pictures piss us off so much because we're standing in front of it. We're trying to adjust their body to the picture. Um, so that's a primary one. Um, and then the secondary one, which is more limbic or, or, or subconscious, is vestibular. Your vestibular system, yes, C1, C2, and then the fluid-filled sacs of the inner ear communicate for postural say, and equilibrium. So for Hudson, sacrum severely torsioned. It was an oblique torsion, which meant he rotated one way and side bent the other way. We call that in my world non-adaptive or non-physiological for that torsion. Reason being, the body can't auto-correct, it can't compensate. Because now I've taken the sacrum, rotated it one way, but then side-bent the opposite way. So I've locked out those pedicles that go from vertebrae to vertebrae, so it can't counter-rotate properly. And in that scenario, your neck becomes basically a dog's breakfast. There's a whole bunch of counter-rotations every which way, trying to keep the head on straight. So yeah, he was dizzy. Now... When I worked on Hudson, first thing I did is I went to Unity One. But before I ever touched a bone, the very first thing I did was relieve all the muscular tension around the pelvic girdle. All that continuous tension that's stretching those poles in the dome tent. Once that was done, then I was actually able to adjust the anominates, that anterior rotation that he had of the one hip. And then I was able to go after the sacrum and straighten it. Once that was done, he stood up and walked. He felt dizzy right away because his spine had just leveled out. Then he walked around the gym for a bit. I checked a couple of things, did a couple more corrections, and then I went to the neck, which is Unity 2. Unity 2 is the skull and the cervical vertebrae down to thoracic vertebrae 4. We call that Unity 2. So we do the bottom end of the stick, then we do the top end of the stick, and he had rotations. And for him, his occiput, so C1, 2, and 3 were right rotated, but then he went the opposite way. C4, C5 went left, and then C6, C7 were right, because... It, because of that oblique torsion, he was with the non-phys. His neck was trying to do whatever it could to get his eyes straight and level. Um, and in that scenario, you get a tremendous amount of concussion-like symptoms. You get dizziness. It can affect your, your affinity for light. Um, and the other thing I would say about uh, Hudson, he's, he, from a cranial side, his sphenoid bone was slightly torsioned the one way. 
your sphenoid bone, it, it, it's kind of the wings are just on the outside here. It's kind of sitting up like this inside your skull. We call it the god bone because it houses your pituitary gland. And when it's torsioned, it'll give you pain behind the eye. You'll get pressure headaches. Um, it can affect mood states as well because your pituitary gland is the allspark. It's, it's the gland that controls every other gland in your body. Um, so we walked through that, and yeah, it was 90 minutes. It takes time. I, I, you know, the body is what the body is. I have to wait for it to respond, and I have to wait for it to relax. The central nervous system, I mean, it will adjust, and it, it will compensate immediately. So at the end of the treatment, he stood up, and yeah, it was fine. But then the magic that we did is all the exercises that came after, all the ball work, all the homework I sent home, because I resynapticized them in the clinic, so his body adopted the new alignment. And then when he went off to play, it was sticky. It stayed. I think I only saw him once more time after that, and then he was pretty good. Yeah, I know he's been good since. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and that. I mean, I just want to re reinforce. Like it really was like that. Like he walked in, headaches, feeling not great, hadn't skated. Was we were worried about whether he could play and win, and like legitimately walked out with without um, symptoms. And obviously, I, mean, I don't know, I should say, obviously, maybe it's maybe that is a regular occurrence for you. So, I mean, I just don't want to, like, have this be so super hopeful for anyone out there. This is going to happen every time. But like it did happen for us. And that's why, like, obviously turned turned us into a believer. And and that's kind of the thing about like the, the, the you use the word sticky. So now it's in my head, like the stickiness with the concussion um, diagnosis now. Right. Because it's super scary for parents trying to take care of these young athletes and for the athletes themselves. And everyone is really worried. Um how do you tell the difference? Like, how, how, how would you help somebody right now or suggest, like, it is or it isn't from a, from a parental standpoint? Well, first off, and this is going to be a harder conversation for some practitioners, but um, you got to actually look for qualified people. And that means people that are actually specialists in concussion, not, not ones that have done a weekend course. Um, so there's the leading concussion specialist in Canada. is actually based in Kelowna. His name is Dr. David Ryan. Okay. Um, he started brain trust brain trust is a, a organization specifically targeting youth and concussions because of all the misinformation that's out there so let's start with the computer programs a lot of players are diagnosed by a computer program well the computer program is going to be dependent upon the explanation given to the child the practitioner delivering that test um, the room that they're in when they're receiving the test the the alternate stimulation they're getting the level of anxiety walking into a new place and ultimately there's a lot of people that are saying they're concussion specialists or offering concussion testing based on the computer program that don't have any sort of formal sort of post-secondary specialties into this one. So I always digress. I mean, for me, um, Brain Trust is a great organization specifically for youth to help you. And when you actually look at the research on concussions, it's opposite of what we're currently doing. So when it comes to brain rest, and if you follow any of the research around Dr. David Reiner's, all the stuff that he does, Brain rest is max, and if you truly have a concussion, like there's been a lost consciousness, there's nausea, vomiting, all the other good stuff, um, it's two days brain rest. That's all you get, two days, and then you got to be on it right away. Otherwise, the brain starts to synapticize to these alternative alignments and alternative patterning, and then you end up with something that's chronic that was never really a concussion, but it's sort of that the beliefs and the adaptations of behavior around concussion, right? And that's where we get lost in the weeds a bit. So if somebody... If somebody just gets hit, right, and there's there, there's no shoulder to the head, it just has a little bit of a whiplash. I mean, sure, if it's hard enough, like if you're hit with a Mack truck, it's going to give you some brain issues. Anytime that the brain smacks back and forth, I mean, ultimately your brain's just a big bowl of custard, in, or a ball of custard inside a bowl, I should say. 
Um, the only thing that makes it rigid and stable is the dura mater. So if it smacks against the skull, sure, it can produce a concussion. However, how we go about diagnosing it is incorrect. So prior to giving a child a test, I might want to landmark on his hips and see if they're set level and square. I might want to place my fingers on his ears and see if they're crooked, because if they are crooked, the test's invalid. I shouldn't be doing it. And this is where the education of those practitioners come in. And I know there's a lot of chiropractors that do it. There's a lot of physios that do it. Some are great. Some aren't. Um, it's a matter of the awareness of the parent to ask better questions, to say, okay, well, prior to doing this testing, what instruction are you going to give my child? Prior to this testing, what assessments are you going to do on my child from a physical basis to ensure that alignments are sound before beginning the program? Um, and that's and so just if I'm going to just cut in quickly. So are you talking about like the pre like when you're supposed to not have had a concussion? That's what a lot of these teams are doing now, like, a, you know, a normal a concussion, normal test. And then if you do get a hit, then you go and you take the same test again and see what if your scores are different. Is that what you're? Yeah, there's there's there's, there's there's tests like that that they're using all the time for screening. Yeah. Right? A lot of times it's the team trainer. So like we've got a boy that we share um, that I think I'm seeing Thursday next week. Now he's he apparently has had three concussions and. So he came to me after the one from you. I mean, he plays junior A here in BC. Um, you know, it, the challenge was it wasn't. He was so rotated, his head was so off, and he had, he'd done the concussion screening test like two days before, failed it miserably because he couldn't even track. Like, I mean, obviously, Lala Mast and I worked together quite a bit. Um, you know, I use the goggles. I use them in concussion recovery uh, specifically because it's great for retraining gaze and stability. Um, so I worked with this gentleman. I set his alignments, and then I did a bunch of sort of post-concussive drills, or you would say, or just basically gay stability drills. And he went back that day and had no nausea, no nothing. He could exercise. Everything was fine. Uh, you know, and then, but the trainer wouldn't put him back in. The trainer left him out because um, he had that one failed test. I, I asked him to get retested right away because if he would have had the test fail, set alignments, done the gay stability, retest with the same test, you would have seen a pass. Um, and that's the challenge I have is these tests we're using, they're a great tool and resource if the tester is properly trained and gives the test under the same way, the same time and same conditions. And that's where we get that test retest reliability. And this comes out of my graduate work. It's like you can have tester reliability issues where the test may be sound, but the person delivering it uh, alters its effect because of their instruction or their, their lack of information or education. And gotcha. That's where we run into trouble a lot of times is that sort of the, the, the tester reliability is one and the test retest. You know, if I have the test on the road in the back of a bus as I'm traveling versus a test in a room where the noise is controlled, well, that there, there's no intertest reliability. There's no test retest reliability whatsoever. Right. Right? So and that's where we're running into some trouble. And then I guess just for, again, maybe to, to keep it a little bit simpler and speaking to parents who are listening, like if, if the brain is a fairly difficult thing to injure just by design, mm -hmm. correct? Like to, to actually, and a concussion is like by definition a brain injury, right? Mm -hmm. So the brain is hurt and, and because the brain is hurt or bruised, um, you are going to get these, you know, these memory loss issues. You're going to experience nausea. You're going to have the headaches. Like all these things are, are like the symptomology is pretty similar, right? But the symptomology is also very similar if your neck is out or if you're, hips are out. So like, so in, in taking that and unpacking that um, and being super general, like you definitely don't have to be unconscious to have experienced a concussion, correct? Um, no, you don't. So a loss of consciousness is instantly a grade three. 
any loss of consciousness for any length of time is a grade three concussion. It is severe. That is a TBI. Okay. Gotcha. Um, uh, now, level one or grade one concussions. I mean, it is a it is a minor hit, and then they're diagnosing tracking issues. I mean, you're going to you're going to look at the cranial nerves, and I mean, any therapist worth of salt can assess the cranial nerves relatively within five six minutes. Go through everything, right? It's like if I can stick my tongue out, uh, there's a cranial nerve. If I can move my eyes side to side, there's abducens. If I can look upwards, there's ocular motor, right? Um, if I can smell, well, there's olfactory, right? If I can do convergence, divergence, and I can see light, well, there's optic and a couple others. So there's tons of stuff we can test and see, but you need to understand what you're looking for. Now, your visual center in the brain is actually at the back of the skull. It's sitting back here. So if I have that coop and then my head flings back and I hit the ice contra coop, yeah, then I can get into a level one, level two, where there might not be a loss of consciousness. And then my tracking can be effective, such that when I'm moving a line across and I'm tracking it, you might see one eyeball drop down, come back up, because the ocular motor that controls all the upwards movements gives out for a moment and comes back on. And that's where players have some trouble. Same time, nausea, dizziness, headaches, that can actually come from a sacral torsion or an occipital rotation. Right. So is it a chicken or the egg, chicken or the egg? And what I always say is, well, why don't we start with alignments first and then test and see? Come from a place of what's called homeostasis. Put the body back in the alignment it's supposed to have and then start testing it versus, you know, the analogy I would say is this one. Well, if I know my car leaks oil, right, well, and I, I know I know the idle's off, wouldn't I fix it before, before I go try and putting on a, on a gyno for horsepower or a dyno for horsepower? Like it, it makes logical sense where our body's the same way. Put it back into alignment and then test and see, right? And it, the body will recover. It will adapt. The challenge I have is how we're treating brain rust. Like, you know, putting people in a dark room with no light, no stimulation for weeks at a time. It's contraindicated in the latest literature. The latest literature done by some people way smarter than me. Um, it's two days brain rest and then get on it. And then you got to look at what is it that's the concussive issue because Concussions aren't just one area. That there's multiple parts of the brain. You can take Broca's area, which is motor and speech. If that area is affected, well, yeah, motor control and speech can't be affected. Well, there's other areas, right? So you've got your cardiovascular center that could be affected. Well, then you might get a vasovagal dyscope with exercise. Your diastolic blood pressure drops and produces dizziness. Well, that's a specific rehab modality where you do thresholding. You take them up to the level where symptoms are about to occur, then stop and come back down. That's one area. Now, if it's the visual spatial center and the eyes are dropping out, well, then they need vision therapy or gaze stability work. Challenge is, is what I'm finding in our industry is everyone's kind of a, they specialize in just one thing and that's their thing. But the human body isn't one thing. The human body is everything. Like, you know, my heart operates while my lungs breathe, while my eyes see, while my nose smells, while my tongue tastes. Nothing's individualized. And the same thing with concussion. It can be one thing or it could be everything. Right. So why not treat it as a whole? Uh, as a whole organism and attack it that way. Right. So then from, from a parental viewpoint, trying to assess their child, I mean, if, if they were unconscious, then boom, like you, you, that's very, that's serious. It's level three, like yeah. st start, start getting into some practitioners level one or two or harder. And that's where we need to, um, if, if I'm hearing you properly, that's where like start first with the alignment, get yeah. somebody that understands alignment, get your, get your child back in alignment and let's see what happens to the symptoms. Perfect. And if symptoms go away, then we can say that it's not a concussion anymore, correct? And you, you can say, go back. You, to... Yeah, it would lend to not being concussion-based is what I would say. Um, and again, you would 
still put them on the ice, the orange jersey them, get them to skate around, bring their heart rate up, see if symptoms come back on. If it doesn't, well, then you can reintroduce them into some light contact drills, see what happens there, right? Still have a return to play protocol, but at the same time, get on the alignments immediately, especially with the whiplash-based incident, because if I get hit, my neck goes whack. Well, yeah, it's rotated instantly. Yes, my brain would have spun, but my skull is, my brain is surrounded by cerebral spinal fluid, and it has three different layers on it. There's an arachnoid space, subarachnoid. There's all these different layers, and, and there's fluid there that cushion and protects it, right? So it, it is a well-housed unit, is what I would say. Right. And just because the mechanism is whiplash-based doesn't mean it's concussive, is my challenge. Now, it could be, but it isn't the instant assumption, and that's where we've gone to now. It's like, oh, it's this right now. And then players are being benched and missing, you know, like the, the young man that you sent me, captain of his team, hasn't played in months. And I worked on him right away. I had him on the ball. I had him on the rocker board. I had him doing gaze work. If he was concussed, he would have thrown up. He was fine. Walked out of there fine. It was literally just torsions in his body that was able to clear up so his brain could start feeling equilibrium again equally. Um, right. And it's ultimately we have to understand that our body is filled with proprioceptors that are constantly communicating to our central nervous system and telling us information. There's proprioceptors that tell us movement, muscle spindles, Golgi tendon or mechanoreceptors. There's other ones in our carotid arch that tell us, you know, the, the partial pressures of oxygen O2. It tells us the pH in our blood and our body responds in kind. Um, if we start to look at the organism and understand the sensors that are coming in and how it can affect um, the, the actual outputs, well, then it makes more sense. Yeah. Um, just one question, and, and I don't want to beat this concussion thing to death too much, yeah. but I do want to ask just a personal question. So when I was in Germany, mm. uh, I don't know, guys talk like through their careers, right? Oh, I must have had all these concussions. Like, I really don't think that I had any. Like, I think I took some big hits, but I never, I don't know. I was never unconscious, you know, saw stars a couple times, but never had lingering headaches. So mm. I think that either I was lucky or maybe my brain was just, you know, some people are just are able to do things, right? And and uh, where others might get hurt. Neither here nor there. But when I was in, in Germany, uh, in the practice of all things, uh, cutting uh, on, a, on a two-on-one drill, on a regroup, I lost my footing. The guy that I was crossing with tried to jump over me. I was looking back for the puck. He needed me in the head. So we were both going essentially full velocity. He mm. also needed me. I wasn't looking. Uh, Apparently, I was unconscious, convulsing for like two minutes on the ice. Like people thought I was going to die. You know, it was mm -hmm. 20, 20 some years ago. And, um, anyways, long recovery from that. Nobody touched my hips. Nobody looked at my neck. Nobody did anything. Right? I just it was all sim symptom based. Uh, a lot of pressure from the coach to come back. That's not the point of my question. But the point of my question is, when I did come back, and ever since, there was one scenario where I took a hit, saw it coming. It was an absolutely nothing hit. I didn't lose consciousness at that point, but then I reverted straight back to like concussion symptoms. And that was quite scary for me. It was one of the reasons why I actually got out of the game because I mm. thought that I was now prone to it. Right. Like it was, it was quite, it was quite scary. And now, and ever since then, if I ever get like, if I ever do a, a somersault or if anything like that inversion of any type, like gets me super dizzy and like, I'm, and I never had that before. Mm. Um, just from that outlay, like, am are you more prone once you've had one? Is that a thing, or 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 how would you assess me and like where I'm at at 47 now? Well, with a major concussion, technically speaking, the research does support that you can be more prone to having one again. And now, that's based off normative data, and and problem with that one is you have to look at it. Like, there's been studies out there on drinking where they say that you know um, reducing drinking down to one glass a day makes you live longer. Well. 
the subject group in that study was alcoholics. So yes, reducing it made them live longer because they were alcoholics. Well, concussions, I mean, just because that's you, and I've had some majors. I mean, I played rugby until I was 32. I ran into a scrum once and took a knee right off the forehead as, as I was trying to blow it up. And I don't remember much, but apparently I kept on running up and down the sideline asking why the game had started and why I wasn't playing. And they kept on making me run up and down the sideline because they're trying to watch the lucid period when I came out of it. And apparently it was a good 15 minutes of me going back, forgetting everything, asking the same question again. So yeah, I was concussed. But I got back to playing and I, I kept on hitting. I kept on having issues. And I, for me, the, my recovery was pretty quick in the sense of like I was on the right stuff right away. Because this is when, I mean, I was already in grad school. I'd already been researching. I understood the frame and I got on stuff right away. For you, I mean, that would have created a torsion in your body. And I'm not going to, that's an incident unconscious convulsing. You were concussed. It's a level three. Okay. No arguments. Um, having said that though, if the alignments weren't checked off and you were kept in torsion, right, or your body was compensating for a malalignment, from a motor learning, motor behaving perspective, it starts to recruit all the muscles differently because it's trying to stabilize the torsion, it's trying to compensate for it, mm. which then becomes ingrained. It's like when an athlete goes into the training session or say, take an NHL, he goes into train and his body's torsioned, it's out of alignment. If he's using it in that sense, well, then his brain's going to adopt that torsion as normal, which is what you would have done over your career. Now, if I'm malaligned and I take another hit, well, then, yeah, some symptoms are going to come on because if I rotate the osteo, I'm going to feel dizzy. Like, I could just, as osteos, I mean, we can rotate you the wrong way if we if we, we can overcorrect and do something. And if you do that, somebody's instantly nauseous and dizzy. Did I give them a concussion? No, I just messed up their vestibular system. So their brain's now perceiving a bobblehead like this. So... And the other thing I'm going to say is there's a bit of confirmational bias in ourselves. So the best way to explain this is, and I'm sure a lot of people out there can relate to it, um, let's talk about back pain as an analogy. So I've injured my back, and I think I have back pain, um, or I feel back pain, perceive it, and it's been there for a long time, so I think I have back pain. Now, I always talk about my back being tight, so I'm thinking about my back and thinking about being tight. Well, your brain is this wonderful supercomputer. If I'm bending my finger and I stare at my finger, and I just think about straightening my finger. I'm already firing 20 to 60 muscle fibers, depending upon the strength of the thought. So if you're thinking about your back and you're thinking about it being tight, congratulations, you win. It's tight. It's the same thing with concussions. If I perceive symptoms to be there, and this is what we call a, a psychosomatic reflex. Now, it doesn't mean people are crazy. It's just it's called a psychosomatic reflex because it's that intention of thought. Our brain operates on electrical signals. Um, and a thought is an electrical signal. If I have a thought, the brain sends an impulse right? automatically. So if I'm thinking that I have this issue and I'm focusing on this issue, good news. You're going to feel the issue. It's like when you start to get nauseous. The more you focus on being nauseous, well, guess what? You end up throwing up. Whereas if you can tell yourself, hey, I'm fine, or you can work through that psychosomatic side, sometimes you can recover. And it's probably the best way to go at it. A loss of consciousness is a grade three. I'm going to say that again. Um, Any loss of consciousness. So you work and cuss. But how you were treated afterwards makes it a massive effect on your return to play and your longevity in your career. Somebody should have been on you that day, setting alignments, and they should have been seeing you one, two, three days post, making sure things were holding up, making sure the occiput was clear, um, that you didn't have any C1, C2 rotations, and then allowing you after day two to start doing some basic balance drills, some basic gaze stability drills in homeostasis. It would have changed your trajectory and sadly you probably would have been continuing to play right yeah crazy um all right let's shift gears i want to talk about um 
Well, I, I, I like the topic of athleticism. I want to get to the feet for sure, because I know that's a that's a, a, a point of passion for you. And, and I think that it's something that's really like the players don't know about. But I, maybe we'll start the discussion around how sports specific people are and players are nowadays. Like I am I am a big component and maybe it's maybe it's a dinosaur. Or maybe it's going to come around and be the new way again, but of like general athleticism and play lots of sports and do lots of things. Mm-hmm. Um, where where as we've never really had this discussion before, where are you in that in that, uh, you know, in that discussion? If um, should a hockey player be a hockey player from day one, if that's what they know what they like? Or do you think that there's actually an advantage to do different things at, to a certain point? I'll start it off this way. We're doing it completely wrong right now. I mean, I, I taught at Kaplan University for a number of years, and I taught motor learning, motor behavior. Um, single sport athletes is what they're called, but that's when we specialize in. And males shouldn't occur until the age of 17 at least. They should be playing as many sports as possible. One of the other courses that I taught for a number of years is called Human Growth and Development. It was about all the critical periods in a youth, well, from basically conception until adulthood when the, when the, the bones ossify, all the different critical periods along the way. And what I'll say is I'll start with this way. If I'm not using a motor pathway, and a motor pathway is a specific program that my brain has to recruit tissues in a certain way, how I throw a baseball overhand, how I throw a baseball underhand, how I kick a soccer ball, those are all motor programs. If I'm not using that program on a regular basis or I've never developed it, by the age of 10, my body starts to lyse those cells and kill them off because it doesn't want to use the calories to maintain them. Your body wants to be in homeostasis. That relates to caloric intake and caloric output as well. If I'm not using my muscles, what happens to my muscles? They atrophy, right? If I'm not using my brain, what happens to my brain? It atrophies. It's the same way with motor programs. So the single sport athlete conversation, we are actually damaging our children. I'm going to say it that aggressively. Um, We are not offering them the affordances, opportunities to practice, to develop all of the essential primitive movement programs that they're going to require to be a fully functioning adult, let alone an elite athlete. So for me, kids should play and they should play a variety of sports. They should have hand-eye coordination, they should have foot-eye coordination, they should have body awareness. Now this conversation will lead me down a rabbit hole that will get a few people. Should a child be using weights during puberty or prior to puberty? And my answer would be, well, if they can stand on one foot with their eyes closed, you can introduce them. But if they can't stand on their foot with their eyes closed, then why would you give them a damn dumbbell? They can't even control their own body weight. So the fundamental focus of a child as they're developing should be the quality of the movement, the quality of the motor program, which you can then load in later years after the child has stopped growing like a rubber band. Um, you have to manage the girls hit puberty 12 to 14. That's kind of their range. Between that timelines, they're growing the fastest they're ever going to grow. They're occurring the most amount of bone mineral mass they're ever going to get. Um, so basically, every month, month and a half, they're like Bambi with a fresh set of legs. Yet, instead of working on body awareness, stability, primitive movement programs, we're giving them weights. They don't even know how to control their alignments. Now we're weighting their frame, which is incorrect. Um, and then they, they're not given the opportunities for multiple sports. So a hockey player, well, why don't they play handball or soccer to benefit their sport? Think of the hand-eye coordination in handball alone. What about tennis? Lateral movement for a skater. Goalies, well, they're lateral movers. Maybe a goalie in the summertime needs to do something that's anterior-posterior, right? Because um, we're trying to look at the, 
what's called the, the, the demands analysis. What's the demands of the sport and the specific position? And then what's the needs analysis? What's the player weekend in relation to those demands? Um, and a lot of our children are weak in just basic motor control because they're only training the body in one frame. A skater is an anterior posterior athlete. He goes up and down the ice and his strides on a specific angle, specific muscle recruitment. So he's really good at that one. Well, his adductors are super weak. They constantly pull them. Hamstrings aren't great, constantly pull them. And they cheat balance on a skate with momentum. If you have them stand on a skate perfectly still on one foot, they fall over. So we haven't really developed an athlete. There's not athleticism there. And athleticism doesn't exist in doing things once. Athleticism is a repeated patterning, multiple reps under multiple levels of stimulation. So when I work with a child, I don't do repeated sets of the same thing. I do multiple different variations of an exercise, multiple pinations of a fiber. So that's the angle of the fiber to the joint line. I'm constantly changing it because I want their brain to keep on guessing and I want them to maximize and develop as many motor programs as they possibly can. And that's ultimately at the NHL level. That's all I'm doing with the boys. Like Tompkins, a uh, wonderful guy, and he's a guy that I can say his name. It's fine. He was with Tampa Bay. Um, he came to me just a hot mess, absolute hot mess, training like a dinosaur. He's a goalie that's doing split squats with a rear leg elevated, 100 pounds, constantly blowing his back up. But he couldn't stand on one foot. He couldn't track a puck properly. And this is a kid that's made it as far as he's made it, um, playing elite in Sweden and then coming back to the show. And he was three weeks out from camp training like a dinosaur. And I said, you know what? Stop. And I didn't even charge him. I trained him for free for three weeks. Just said, I'm going to show you a difference here. You show up every day. I'll be here. And he showed up every day. And we worked on what we called the way. Um, it's it's a program that I've designed. And it's a book that I'm actually writing. Um, we, we talked about the way. And we, we got him actually understanding his body, controlling his foot, controlling his joint angles. Um, and it changed his game. And he's he's there's a wonderful podcast that he just did where he did, gave me a lot of credit for it. And it's it's... I responded to him and I said it was him that did all the work, not me. He showed up. I just opened the door. That's all I did, right? So with any athletes out there that are thinking they should specialize, stop. Go play something else. Go swimming. Hey, guess what? You're playing a sport that weights your body. There's contact. There's massive physical demands. Once you go somewhere where gravity doesn't have an effect on you, you can work on your cardio. Right. Or running lines. Do something else. And or, or go play soccer. Go play tennis. Go play squash. Oh, my God. You'll, you'll get some cardio. Right, and um, the reaction time is squash because the ball doesn't bounce very well. It has to be fast. Your acceleration on the target has to be quick. It's developing different facets of your body. So, from a motor learning, motor behavior perspective, everything's completely—I want to say—ass backwards. So. Right. Well, I am gonna. So, can, can we? Yeah. I mean, there's there's sports, right? And and different sports do different things again. Yeah. And and some are very, I would say, repetitive. To me, hockey is a fairly dynamic sport, right? You're you're you have a hand-eye coordination. You're doing something with your hands, and your feet are doing something different. You have to play in a 360 degree kind of space. Um, there's a lot going on. So can can we agree that that hockey is a fairly athletic endeavor, just in of itself? Right? Oh, it is massively athletic. The demands on it. I mean, the positional demands. Because you look at it. The duration of the sport itself is aerobic by nature. Anything greater than 20 minutes in length is technically defined as an aerobic activity, but the shift durations are anaerobic. So hockey's in this weird little world where, especially for skaters, now goalies are a separate beast. Goalies should never be trained like a skater. I'll say that out loud. Stop training your goalies like a skater. Okay. Now, but skaters themselves, they're on the ice for 30 seconds up to a minute, depending if they get trapped two minutes at the ice. Um, and their legs are screaming out. There's so much lactic acid in there. And then they have to go back to the bench and sit perfectly still. Well, what we know about the venous system is blood doesn't return to your heart unless you have muscular contractions. 
so that lactic acid is just sitting in your legs burning right so but they have to have this high aerobic ability to be able to flush that out so like when we used to test the canucks back in the day for a forward we wanted the vo2 max around 65 so 65 millimeters of oxygen per kilogram body weight per minute why we wanted that is because we knew they had the capillary density the blood vessel formation to flush out lactic acid so we would do a vo2 max test and then we ended with one of the worst tests in all of the nhl everyone hated us we did a 45 second wind gate with nine percent of the body weight a standard wind gate's 30 and seven we did 45 and nine and i was the guy that had to run that test so i was not the favorite person to them <laughs> because immediately afterwards i made them or we made them sit still in a chair and they couldn't move they couldn't contract a muscle and we drew their blood one two five and seven minutes post what we were looking for is well how anaerobically trained were they how high of a blood lactate could they generate in millimoles but then the most important thing how quickly did they clear because how we could look at that 50 percent clearance rate and from that data we were able to tell the coaches back in the day how many seconds they needed on the bench before they could repeat right wow. so hockey is a totally big i can i can get into so many slices of the onion on this one it's a dynamic sport that you require so much like the hand-eye coordination the balance the stability the, the ability to be a ballerina right on the ice and get around like you look at the mcdavid's you look at the crosby's and they are guys that are doing multiple different things in the off seasons. Like they, oh, they're yeah. doing so many different styles of training yet here we do strength training in the off season. And even in season, we're still doing strength training and hypertrophy in season. In season is not the time for strength training and hypertrophy. You're playing a sport that has high demands with contact. And now you're ripping the tissues apart in your training as well. There's no recovery in season. You can have a maintenance lift once a week maintenance, which is, you know, 88 to 93% of your one rep max for two to three reps one to two times that's it seven movements nothing more it's a half an hour that'll maintain your muscle mass the whole season the rest of the time it should be balance coordination proprioception hand-eye coordination twice a week with that alone and then you got a couple long easy rides to flush and then one to two days a week we're working on lactate threshold super easy total training time in a week maybe eight hours of actual gym time max including cardio yeah. Thank you for being here. Like I said in the opener, that this episode was live in my parent group, the Facebook parent group called Up My Hockey. So sometimes I do that there. The Connor Geeky episode, we went live uh, in on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, Up My Hockey, and also on Instagram. Uh, but for hockey parents out there, the, the Up My Hockey uh, parent group on Facebook is a gem. 2,700 members and growing. Uh, we talk about mindset. We talk about personal development for athletes. We we share timbits from the interview and and have weekly questions and and we we just you know support each other. The, the journey of hockey is difficult to navigate if you've not gone through it. And even if you have gone through it, uh, as a parent, the whole thing changes. Like, how do we best support uh, the enjoyment of our athlete, the mental fitness of our athlete, the uh, you know the goal chasing of our athlete, the journey. And that's what this uh, of my hockey is really all about, about the journey of your athlete and how to navigate best and feel like you're not on your own uh, on, you know, in the process. So uh, definitely join in there. Uh, visit up my hockey. Uh, it's up my hockey parent group is the name of it. So if you search that and you do have to answer a couple questions to join, it's not a public group. It's a private group. We want to make sure that you are actually a hockey parent with uh, with good intentions and uh and yeah and then we'll let you in and you can take part and uh maybe next time you can you can listen to a live 
version of this. Uh, James was kind enough after, if you are intrigued by what we are talking about, James said he would come back inside the parent group for a Q&A. So if anyone has any questions, uh, james at wendland.ca, that's W-E-N-D-L-A-N-D.ca. You can fire questions at him directly, or you can fire them to me at jason at upmyhockey.com. And, uh, and if we get enough questions, uh, it doesn't take many to have a 30-minute Q&A session. We'll have some uh, some questions in our in our pockets to go with and uh we'll host it live so if anybody wants to chime in while we're going live that would be great so yeah up my hockey uh parent group on facebook and uh don't forget to check out upmyhockey.com on the web a uh, new new website new look uh offering a few new services out there too so if you're curious about what's going on at up my hockey you can always check into upmyhockey.com now let's get back to the episode with james wendlin I want to steer it back just a little bit yeah. to like the, the youth athletes and just talking about um, that and, and just from, from an experiential standpoint. So one of the programs that I started, and I don't think we've, we've talked about it, uh, mm-hmm. in my fourth year now, we, we started in COVID. Uh, I just called it my Up My Hockey Academy. So it, it's not sanctioned by the school district at all. It's just something that I was like, well, one, I thought that there was a couple gaps and I'll get into them. I don't think physical education, like PE in schools now is not anywhere close uh, to what it was. And I'm not saying that they had it right when, when we were in school, but at least you were learning a sport, like, and you would learn the fundamentals of the sport and, and there were qualified people tr- uh, doing it. Like now there, it seems like it's handball and, and, you know, or dodge, I mean, uh, you know, dodgeball or whatever, like they're just playing games essentially, right? Like just to get them out of the classroom, at least that's our experience in the school. So I was, I was a little bit put off by, by the physical education experience, uh, th- that we were seeing here. And, um, and then also like the lack of competitiveness that you're not like, if you're good, if they did actually play a game and you're good at it, you're not allowed to try very hard because everyone else needs to feel comfortable. Right. So like all that was driving me nuts. Uh, and I was like, you know what, these kids need to, to do more because like I had hockey kids too, that were very like, they wanted to play hockey and they didn't really want to do anything else. So in my own, in my own ecosystem, my, my own boys were showing me this and I'm like, okay, I'm going to develop this program. We're going to have hockey be the centerpiece. We'll do that every day but we're going to bring in different things, whatever that may be, right? So I would bookend it uh, or we would stack it and we'd go throughout the school year with different stuff. So like this year we started with football and rugby. That was, we were on the track and we also had an hour and a half of hockey. And then we went to rock climbing and basketball. And now we're doing volleyball and aquatics, right? And so I love it. I mean, I think the kids love it and, 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 why I love it, one, is because to your point about talking about what kids can't do, like going back to football, like kids didn't know how to tack, how to fall to the ground even. Like let's break it down to that. Like did not know how to fall to the ground. How to bring somebody down was even another thing. But like in six weeks, and these kids are young, right, like elementary school age kids, like they can get it. But it's just so crazy to see how limited their experience is from a physical standpoint. Just with like, you know, how their nature is now. Like, you know, we usually are in houses. Nobody's out playing. Uh, Schoolyards aren't, you're not allowed to kind of be rambunctious or like play or, you know, anything like that. And and like just like the body awareness of how to fall blew me away. So anyways, I think it's very, very needed. And, um, and so from your standpoint, again, you're reinforcing that this is probably a good idea. Like, let's do more. Yeah, more. More is better. More is better. As much opportunity as they can. You got a kid that's developing. It's... You know, language, part of the age of two, up to the age of two, that's the critical period for language. Introduce as many as you can, right? So in my family, 
Like we speak French, we speak Italian, we speak English. Why? Well, because I know my children, and this was introduced from birth. We deliberately did not speak English because um, we know we're going to get it. It's the same thing with sport. Give them as much as they can, right? Um, give them variety and give it to them early and frequently. Uh, even kids that are at the higher levels are doing it. Give them a break from the ice mentally. Right. Playing something else has a psychological benefit because now it's it's fun again. Everyone out there that's a hockey player or a parent that was a hockey player, you started it because it was fun and you loved it. Then it becomes a job, right? right? And at that point in time, you switch how you view it. And it's even when I talk to my boys, and my, I'm just like, just go play, man. Be a kid. Like, go play, right? Is, and, there, is there a high performance? Um, is there science behind it? And I'm going to do an anecdotal thing from personal experience where – well, and one, I don't know if you know exactly what I do, but I, I help players be the best that they can be. A lot of times that means they do need to do more, right? They're not doing enough, right? There's some kids that are like that. There's also other kids that need to do less, in my opinion, right? Um, and from a personal experience, I'd work hard. I'd do whatever over the summer and do the protocol and everything else. And I would just at some certain points feel worn out and I would take a week off, let's say. Mm -hmm. And I would come back and I would be way stronger than mm -hmm. I left. So now, that's called periodization. You're, you're literally touching on periodization. So you should have periods of what's called active rest every three to four weeks of training. Every three to four weeks, you need to stop. And even even when I ran programs, I used to train hockey players as a strength coach. I retired a few years back, um, and now I just assist other strength coaches like Francilia and them run their programs. I do the treatment. Yeah. Um, but every three to four weeks, the players need a break psychologically and physiologically. And the magic is, is when you take this week of active rest, now it's still active. They're not in the gym. They're not doing their sport. They're doing something, other words, that's fun. They might go play tennis. They might play some golf. They, they, they might just go to the pool. They might go hang out at the beach and do some wake surfing, whatever. Yeah. Something different. And when they come back, guess what? Their performances were better. And I can say this scientifically because in my program, we tested, when I did run it, I've got my own VO2 max, kind of got my own blood acting out. I've got all the toys. We retested them on the Thursday of that active, the, after that active rest week. And every single player every single time we retested after the after rest week was better on all measures on all data because the active rest allowed their body to adapt and recover and it allowed their brain psychologically to adapt and recover the sentence goes like this when i'm training in off season physiological adaptation only occurs at rest if i'm moving my body's taking adenosine triphosphate atp and putting it towards movement Recovery, well, ATP is your currency, it's your money, it's your savings account to make your body work. To recover, it takes ATP. To digest food, it takes ATP, right? To just pump potassium and sodium in and out of a muscle, it takes ATP. And that's what makes muscular contraction. So if we don't have those active rest weeks, our tissues don't adapt, and we get into, which is what we call the alarm phase. Um, so it's about overreaching, overtraining is where we're kind of dancing to. So overreaching is the first sign of overtraining. It's when your mood state towards the gym changes. You're like, I don't want to work out today. This really sucks. I hate this. I don't want to do it. That's overreaching. Overtraining is when your body starts to fail, that exhaustion point. And how that works is um, we have something called the alarm phase, or it's a modeling where you imagine you've got a graph. I introduce a new stimulus. All of a sudden, my body's super sore. An alarm goes off. Um, and then all of a sudden, I've got to increase pain for a bit. But... If I do it properly and I allow myself the rest and recovery, I normalize out at that new level where that stimulus no longer hurts me. 
Now, if I don't do it properly and you keep on pushing, 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 because more is better, more is better, I hit a stage called exhaustion, where my body quits physically, psychologically, and the tissues end up with sometimes irreparable damage. You can tear a muscle, you can tear a tendon. Right? There's lots that can occur. And I mean, uh, I can. there's numerous examples of players I can give with this one where they've done this exact behavior, and then it's, it's ended their careers. So as far as... As, uh, maybe I can unpack this a little different. So sure. if, if if you, let's say hockey players on the ice, on the ice, on the ice, or, or, or training what they think they should be training. Now, we're saying go do something else. Like don't do nothing. Uh, but when you're doing that something else, let's say it is tennis, like you said, like the muscles you are recruiting are different muscles and they're firing in a different way. So you are getting the rest that you're talking about right mm -hmm. for the sport specific scenario that you're doing your hips or maybe your groins are taking a break like whatever is happening there yeah. could could be in that recovery mode yet you are still being active and so you can come back and because your body has had the tense chance to heal you could feel stronger in your sport by not working at it 100 percent. that's exactly correct that is the that is just science in action like it's right i taught strength and conditioning at university this is literally the research these are the textbooks when you periodize a plan you know, every fourth or fifth week or third or fourth week, depending on intensity. If I'm doing power training or speed power, that's only three weeks long max because otherwise you'll tear something, right? Then you get active rest. Now, when you do this, yeah, your tissues are better, you're stronger, you're faster. Taking, it's like with marathoners. When we work with them, the sentence we have to say to them is, listen, to go faster, you got to go slower. And a lot of people don't, they, they have a hard time with that one because they know I just got to push more. I said, no, no, back off the gas pedal, take it off red line, let your engine recover and cool down a bit. You're going to go faster in the long run yeah so now for those people out there uh well one okay so i unpack so as a youth you want to do as much as you can because you are creating these motor pathways you're you're creating more athleticism you're creating a better awareness of your body uh which obviously even if you just want to be a hockey player that's gonna that's gonna not only allow your body to react in different scenarios better I always say, too, just about the strategies of other sports. So you can understand the complexities of your sport, how to attack, how to defend is going to be better. I think you're going to have a greater, a greater understanding of your own game um, mm -hmm. through exposure to other things. So if that is all true, uh, how about from an injury prevention side? Is there, is there a reason to believe that not doing this all the time or being more athletic and, and experience different angles of motion and force that you might be helping yourself in the long run in your sport of staying healthier? hundred percent. I mean, anytime. So I'm going to pack it this way. Um, so let's start with the ankle joint. Let's just take that as an example, because this will lead me into my wonderful love for feet. Um, so the ankle joint itself, well, in the actual capsule and ligaments, we have four different types of mechanoreceptors, two fast acting, two slow acting. They're constantly communicating to my brain, telling it capsule stretch, ligament stretch, and joint position. Now, if I'm in a skate that's laced up and tight, and I'm constantly going mainly anterior posterior, there's some lateral, but mainly anterior posterior is a primary modality. Um, I'm never really experiencing a ton of inversion eversion. So I'm technically more likely to roll my ankle. Whereas if I mix that movement into with a lateral sport, such as a racket-based sport, um, you know, or maybe put them on the goaltending speed with a looser skates and have them move side to side. Um, you know, now I'm experiencing those different joint angles. So my brain starts to understand those mechanoreceptors. They start to perceive them. They start to realize when it's five degrees versus 10 degrees or when it's three degrees versus 30 where I rip a ligament, right? So there is some, some benefits that way just from body awareness. So in, in my field, so in kinesiology, we call it kinesthesia, right? Or the awareness of my body in space. 
Uh, proprioception is another word that gets thrown in there. Um, but if I'm not offering the human frame as many opportunities to learn as many different joint angles as possible, it's not learning how to recruit or stabilize those joints properly, which then puts me at risk of injury. Now, where this goes is we have three different types of muscle groups. There's an agonist, which directly produces the motion. Then there's an antagonist that directly opposes that motion. My quads straighten my knee. My hamstrings oppose straightening the knee. Now, then there's synergists. Synergists are these wonderful little guys that they don't directly produce the motion. They'll aid in it possibly, or they might stabilize the joint structure to protect it. If I don't experience rotational loads and stable, unstable loads, I never develop my synergists properly. And this is where you get athletes where, you know, I had a guy from the West Side Warriors come in for the first time, and I was just trying to show him how undeveloped his anterior and posterior slings are from a body awareness. So I had him stand on one foot, put his hands like this, and I used my pinky fingers. And this is why I get called pinky by a couple of NHL goalies, because I told him exactly what I was going to do. I said, okay, I'm going to push this way on your hands, and you're going to resist, and I'm going to count to three. I'm going to say the word switch, and then I'm going to switch my hands and push this way. He had all the information exactly what I was going to do. So I pushed this through three. I said switch, and I just touched. And with my pinky finger, I could spin this six-foot-four guy around in a circle and hold him there, and he couldn't counter it. He couldn't push back because his brain had no idea how to recruit his fascial slings to stabilize against the force, which means he's at a great risk of injury. And this goes into some of the conversations, players that can take force and players that can't. Learning how to absorb force is a fascial sling-based issue. Learning how to stabilize against embrace or let go to allow the force to dissipate. If I don't have a great awareness of the slings in the human frame, my ability to absorb force is poor, right? My risk of injury is higher. If I don't have good awareness around my joints, the synergists that stabilize them, and then the proprioceptors that are telling my brain where the angles are, I'm more likely to be injured. Right. And yeah. that's so, yeah, that's where we get into it that way. It's, it's when you understand the human frame from a neurological level, you see where the benefits for, for injury prevention come from. Is there, and, and I'm putting you on the spot here, I have no idea if you know this or not, but to me, it seems like there are more injuries in the NHL now that there's more man games loft. I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, but again, if uh, on this line of thinking that we're talking about, the, these athletes that we're seeing now, these young 20 year olds are really their first generation of athletes that have only done one thing you know, from a, from a young age, they're yeah. very sports specific, very young, maybe not a lot of athleticism, maybe not a lot of experience doing other things. And now potentially is this adding to uh, the man games loss at the NHL level? Is there any science there? Am I, am I barking well, up a tree? No, there's, there's tons of signs around this one. I mean, you just go back to basic motor and motor behavior. You look at, I mean, there's so many studies we look at proprioception and vestibular training. So we did great work in the seventies, eighties and nineties. There's so much great science that was valid perfectly well done science published peer-reviewed solid evidence and then we became power lifters and forgot it right um, and now we're still trying to recover from that aspect alone moving something once heavy with really bad joint angles that have zero transference so i'll talk about it from this lens so there's a, there's a quite a few studies out there where they look at athleticism in relation to training modalities now what they've done is they've taken basic athletic tests so t-test beep tests all these different things vertical jump and they take people that are trained in specific modalities and have them do the test to see who was more athletic. Now, of this, they had powerlifters, they had bodybuilders, endurance athletes, they had you know anaerobic athletes, everything else. Now, the worst athlete of all in any sort of athleticism was the powerlifter. 
And when they went back and they did the meta-analysis for it, what they found was the joint angles used to actually lift those weights do not transfer to athletic performance. There's no transference from the training modality to athleticism. Why that is, is the second I open my feet up, I unlock the tarsals of my foot. If I unlock the tarsals, I don't have a stable lever to push off of. I can't cut, I can't jump, I can't run. Now, bodybuilders, which isolate muscle groups um, for, for sport or for, for sort of aesthetic sports, is what I would say, performed far better than a powerlifter did. Even though the powerlifter is using full body movement, the kinetic chain or the, the way he's recruiting his kinetic chain doesn't transfer to athletic performance. The bodybuilder scored better. Now, obviously, athletes that were in sort of multidimensional sports that required both upper lower body coordination and hand-eye coordination, they scored the best, right? But having said that, there's still opportunities for improvement on every front. So athleticism in today's world is diminishing because we are so focused on one thing that we're missing out on demands, right? So let's talk about vision on the X, because I hear this sentence a lot. Oh, he's got great vision. What does it actually mean? What does vision mean? Does he see better than the other person? Does he have 2015, 2010? And the other guy's got 150, 20? Is that what we're talking about? Or does he have really good body awareness because he's developed his kinetic sense? So he understands exactly where his foot is, where his hand is, where his stick is, where the puck is without having to look at it because he's trained in multiple dimensions and multiple different applications. He's like some NHLers that ride a unicycle while juggling in the offseason. Or some nut bar goalies that stand in front of a tennis ball machine in their garage with just their mask blocker and glove because when they get hit, dang sure it hurts at 100 miles an hour, <laughs> while they run hurdles side to side. And this is one of my NHL boys. He literally has a randomized tennis ball machine mounted to his wall that shoots 100-mile-an-hour tennis balls at him while he runs hurdles side to side. Why? He's a lateral athlete. And he has to have hand-eye coordination. Why doesn't he wear any other pads? Because when he gets hit, he remembers not to get hit again. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because, I mean, there's some arguments that, oh, the game's so much faster now, so that's why people are getting injured or this or that or the other. So I guess, I mean, it's really probably hard to find the root of that, but I think that there's something to that. Just, I mean, how we're training, how we're growing up, you know I mean, what... what uh, what we're putting our bodies through or we're not putting our bodies through um when it comes to athletes and taking time off and i know this is like again now hockey not only is single sport specific but also like a 12-year type of a scenario mm -hmm. um i'll just share what i do and by all means critique it all you want if, it, if, it, if it's not if it's not <laughs> accurate or in the best interest of my boys but um they again like they want to be on the ice all the time i i, I make them it's already too long of a season in my opinion but they have to be off the ice all of july and even part of June right now. Now, my oldest is 14, youngest is 11. So I don't know if age matters or at all, but that's kind of been my thing. Once spring hockey goes away, the skates are going away. We're not having one skate a week. We're actually like putting the gear away. August 1st comes around. Uh, we're back on the ice getting ready for the season. I think that's good for them uh, psychologically. I also think it's good for them f physiologically. And um, and again, the passion of it and everything else, right? I think, I think there's some, some good things here that make them potentially better at their sport, not worse. Um, but yet a lot of people think that they're going to be falling behind. You know, there's all these kind of things. Can you speak to that? Is that like, is there a good range or should this be the, the periodization you're talking about? Maybe just take one week off here and there or, or what's, what's, would, how would you design it yourself? So it does go back to periodization again and periodization. So we've got preseason, in season, postseason, and off season. There's four major micros. Now, postseason is where you don't do a damn thing related to your sport. You don't even train. 
Now, the length of your postseason depends upon the length of your actual season and how far you went, what your depth was. This is why it's so hard to repeat as Stanley Cup champions because you go so far and then there's zero time for recovery in the summer. Um, and teams that don't do this properly don't repeat. You need, like if I have, if I'm a Stanley Cup guy and I've run to the Stanley Cup and I've played that, and even if I got knocked out in game six or Canucks in game seven, um, my off season needs, I need six weeks of nothing easily, easily. Six weeks of no hockey, no nothing. Let my body recover. Let my injuries recover. Let my psychology recover. Now for an athlete that just plays regular in the spring, I'm going to argue that your, your postseason, it's minimum two weeks of nothing, ideally four. You like that four that month off, it does not diminish your performance. It enhances it. It enhances the drive, the hunger as well, because now you miss something. But then physiologically, your body can adapt, it can heal, it gets a break. The tendonitis and the tendinosis can be resolved. So therefore it's not chronic over time, which then becomes tendinopathy and tear, right? We're doing it wrong that way. And you can purchase any strength and conditioning book. I got about 20 I can lend somebody from Mom Education. Read it. It'll tell you quite the periodization, postseason. Don't do anything. So, so we even though my kids are yelling at me and I'm the worst dad in the world, it turns out that maybe I'm doing doing them good. You're actually right doing now. precisely what's correct because the age range of your kids, guess what? They're still growing. Yeah. Their body has to divert energy to growing as well. So if they don't have that break, well, they're they're gonna be stunted. Take gymnasts. Well, gymnasts, they're two centimeters shorter than their gen genetic potential because of the constant loading and constant training. Their body redirects growth to cross-sectional area of a bone versus length because of the stimulus. So your kids, yeah, they're growing. They're, everything's adapting. They're, they need to take time off, do something else, go have fun, right? Now, most hockey players love golf. I don't like that relationship because you're taking a player that rotates one way and then he goes plays a sport where he rotates the same damn way. Uh, right. Golf is not a sport your hips like, the downward rotation into an upwards chop. Um, it's challenging. So for a lot of players, if they're swinging the same way they, they, they shoot, well, they tend to keep themselves pretty rotated over summer. Um, gotcha. you know, like Schultz, he loves golf. He got his first hole in one this summer. Um, you can't get him off the course if he, you know, wasn't married with, you know, expecting child or whatever else. He'd probably be up there nine times a week if he could. Okay. Right. And having said that, you need to do something else. Like, go wakeboarding, go skiing, go lie on the beach, go paddleboarding. Give your brain a break. Be active, but don't physically train for your sport. Stay right. active in the sense that you're still moving your tissues. Motion is lotion. Move them around. Go for a jog if you want. Ride a bike. Go rollerblading. Right. Go for a hike. But right. stop the gym. Stop the ice. Give yourself that ideally four weeks of recovery. So okay, so you mentioned that even with the gym. So these guys who are like younger adolescent guys that all want to get bigger and stronger, um, you're saying even step out of that too? Oh yeah, I can get a big stupid bicep. Doesn't make me a better athlete. <laughs> right. I just have a big stupid muscle that I don't know how to recruit. And this is the challenge we get in training. Why are we focused on size? Yeah. Um, I can have big muscles, but if I don't know how to recruit that muscle in every joint angle, it's useless. It has no power. Yeah. Right? So the when it looks to a muscle, you have to look at how you're training it and the pination of fibers you're training it. So I've got a junior A club right now that has somebody running their strength sessions where he is literally just doing heavy squats, heavy RDLs, and bench press three times a week in season. How does that transfer to the sport? When on your, I, I, except for cross-checking, when do you bench press on the ice? Right, and cross-checking, well, you end up losing games from penalty months. Right. Um, and then squats and RDLs in the season 
is a closed kinetic chain based movement. You don't go down the ice hopping with two feet in the same spot, right? In season, everything should be open kinetic chain. So the same logic applies to off season. Stop it. Let your body adapt from the seasonal demands you just had and then restart once your hunger is there and once your body's fully recovered. Is there any reason for a hockey player at all to train super heavy? If they're below positional demands, yes. But if they're at the positional average for their mass, size, and weight, then no. And what does that mean, positional average? So if I'm a defenseman and positional average is, say, 200 pounds for a defenseman in the league, that's what they're looking for. Um, you know, so if I'm, you know, that 195 to 205 range, you're fine. Focus on the recruitment of it. Focus on your athleticism. Focus on your cardiovascular. Focus on your hand-eye. Leave the heavy weights alone. Still do a maintenance lift once a week, so, you know, twice if you really need the beach body feel. Um, but focus on the other stuff that matters, right? Focus on your kinetic chains, your fascial slings, like how you rotate. Focus on any limitations in your mobility. Because, I mean, you can see limitations when somebody walks. They don't have that counter rotation as their hips move, right? So focus on the other aspects of the game. Stop lifting super heavy if you're already at positional average. It's like... Okay, so then just so I can stop you there. So then yeah. that, you're saying lift heavy in, in, the, in the hopes or in the want of gaining mass. Right? Is that, yeah, is that that's the advantage of lifting heavy? So hypertrophy is gaining mass. It's getting cross-sectional area of the muscle fiber. Strength is working on recruitment, which is a completely different strategy. So if your mass is at positional average, but your strength is lacking, well, then sure, lift heavy, for, you know, four to six reps, 80, 85% of one rep max for three to five sets. But that's an off-season thing. Yeah. In the off-season, you can recruit that way. You still need the rest and recovery. But then once you're at positional average, stop and focus on your next weakness. This is why there's what we call the demands analysis. We look at the sport and the position and figure out that like, you can get the draft scores. You, you can see all the averages for everyone that's been going into the draft, right? Well, if you're below those averages, figure out where you're below and target getting to that average. Right. If you're already there for strength, you're already there for vertical jump, but you're not there on the DO2 max and you're not there on the peak power and the wind gate, well, where's your weakness, right? If I already have a million dollars in GICs that's paying me 3%, um, and there's opportunities with Roger's sugar that pays me 9% that I'm not maximizing. Well, I might buy some Roger's sugar. Right. Okay? Um, it's where am I putting my ATP? Where am I putting my energy, the currency of my body? And a lot of us are doing it wrong. And the other way, how we're training as well. Hockey is not a closed kinetic chain sport. Your feet are constantly changing position, as are your arms, as you apply and absorb force. All of your training should be unilateral, on one foot, using one arm, Technically, contralateral for the movements of left hand, right leg, and coordination because all your brain's wired. Then you can lift heavy. You can do power strength that way using landmines and everything else. If I see a player doing squats and deadlifts and bench press in season, well, they're making themselves slower and they're making their muscles dumber. But there's this. Yeah. That is I, really uh, I tell my boys uh, the the story like when I went to the LA Kings and and so I got traded there. It's my second trade and kind of like in a big opportunity, of course, and. Mm -hmm. You know to get out of the minors and and establish myself and they said that they wanted me to be probably a third or a fourth line right winger the next year right so and they wanted me to be at 215 pounds so you talk about like why people want to put on weight but i mean that's what you're told as an athlete right this is i, I need to be 215 pounds i played my entire career pretty much at 200 202 205 and it was always hard for me to put on weight so this off season like i went 
bonkers, you know, like I went bonkers with the caloric intake and with my weights and, and followed their schedule to a T, which I now know is essentially an Olympic powerlifting weight training schedule is what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I could squat, squat 450 pounds to 90 degrees. No problem. I was bench pressing 275 and mm-hmm. I was 215 pounds and like four and a half percent body fat. I was a beast. Mm-hmm. I was freaking slow. Mm-hmm. Which what you is so do. crazy, right? Like you do everything that you think you're supposed to do. And it was probably the worst that I ever, it was the worst I played for sure. That season um, was not comfortable, didn't feel fast or explosive. And um, anyways, I mean, I don't know what that means. I just mean, I guess what it means is like, there is a way to do things. And one of the things that I thought now, if I was to go back and do it all again, was to be strong through extension right and in and in different places and so when i'm trying to think about that now and i haven't researched or looked into it i uh, got too much on my plate but it's like what are those like what are those apparatuses when you go to a gym because really what does bench press do like again it gives you a bigger chest but it doesn't really help you as a hockey player and doing a military press doesn't really help you as a hockey player it gives you a bigger shoulder so like what what can we do is it a steel mace type stuff is it kettlebell stuff is it like you said it's one leg like how how should a hockey player be handling some type of a gym session in general Okay, so I'll go back to the first point there, why you felt slower. Um, there's something called strength to mass ratio, okay? So strength to mass, it's that's what fundamentally produces your power and explosion. If you have a high level of strength in relation to your body mass, right? The ability to propel your body is what we're defining as strength or recruit the, the motor units properly with maximal velocity. You got a high strength to mass ratio, you can jump higher, your vertical's higher, you're more explosive on the ice, you're faster, right? Now, if my mass goes up, but I don't work on the recruitment, the pination, the joint angles, or the overall motor recruitment. But now my strength to mass ratio goes down. Therefore, I'm slower. I have less pop. And your story is no different. I mean, back when I was with, when I worked in the preseason stuff with the Nux, there was a guy that came in where he had a legitimate opportunity, but his wife was a bodybuilder and his wife's brothers were bodybuilders. So he had the same mentality, thought he had to get bigger. So he went back and trained like a bodybuilder all summer long. He came back 20 pounds heavier, just jacked, super cut. Everyone thought he was a specimen. Then he got on the ice and he couldn't move, couldn't do anything he did the year before, and he got cut down to the AHL, down to the ECHL. Then he got bounced out of SBHL and he was done, right? All because of that stupid belief in that bigger and heavier is better. Now, if your coaches want you to be 205 or 210 and you're 200, well, right before you weigh in, guzzle two liters of water. You hit the 205 or 210, but guess what? Take a leak, you're back to your normal weight again. So you're satisfied that need for weight. Guzzle some water right before you weigh in, hold your pee. Right. You'll, you'll get there and then piss it out and go back to what you were doing now when it comes to the gym stuff i'm going to say it this way we need to work our body in as many joint angles as possible and as many pinations of the muscle fiber as possible with as much instability as possible right to be a stable athlete you must train in an unstable environment stability cannot come from doing things in a stable way like a bench press or a two-legged squat you do not develop stability you develop recruitment in a very specific joint angle that's completely level and stable. So if you want to be a stable athlete, get unstable in the gym. Get on one foot. Get on balance boards, rocker boards, boxes, move weights, use kettlebells, use maces, use cables, right? Use a landmine. I mean, you know, uh, if you go on my Instagram page and you scroll down a long ways, you're going to see some of the stuff I used to do with some of my boys where I have them doing landmines where we have blind movements. We had something called a 90-degree switch snatch. So they had to stand holding the bar facing the other way. They had to launch the bar and rip it posteriorly, jump, spin that 180 degrees and catch it with the opposite hand, right? And they were, it wasn't lightweight. They're moving 120, 150 pounds with one arm with power 
but then they're spinning, so they have that orientation, hitting with square feet, hand-eye coordination to catch the bar. What happens if they don't catch the bar? Well, there's a risk of injury. So the Ukraine, that demands on the ice. And a lot of people don't realize, like, if you're not training in your environment for the, 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 the attentional demands with all the distractions, you're losing transference. Again, it's like a goaltender. When you're trying to train them in off-season, if you're doing anything with sort of gay stability tracking motor programming, put on some loud music, have somebody yell at them, have somebody call his name while he's trying to focus. Because that's what's happening. You're banged on the glass. People are swearing at you. Your you know, parents are screaming from the bleachers. And believe it or not, kids on the bench hear everything. I've been on the bench. I hear everything that's said in those bleachers. Um, you know, so your kids are always attending to all these different variables. We'll train them that way. Right. right. So in the gym, be as unstable as you possibly can. Don't have your focus on how much you lift. Focus on how well you lift it. Right. Okay. And do it in such a way where you have to recruit your body in as many different positions or angles as possible. So now to, to make this actionable and I'll make, I'll tell one story. So Brad Larson, uh, longtime NHLer from Vernon here, he was coach of the Columbus blue jackets until, you know, end of last season. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was a beast in the gym. Like he was a year younger than me and this guy, uh, I thought I worked hard, and then you know, I mean, you saw what Lars was doing, and he was a bit of ahead of, ahead of his time. It sounds like because there was a, there was a, a point of time and uh, where I was watching him in the gym. We went to the same gym, and uh, he would do almost everything on a ball. Mm -hmm. So like on whatever, not a Bosu ball, but like a full one. What are those ones called? Uh, just your sisal ball or exercise ball, yeah. Okay, like an exercise ball. So he'd be doing like he would do, let's say, lat raises with cables. Or single arm even, right? So single arm lat raises, but he'd be kneeling on a ball extended above the ground. Like he would do so much of that stuff. And that is that is kind of what you're talking about, correct? Like maybe exactly. do some that's of these it. movements, but do it in an unstable way. That we, that's exactly how we train people still today. None of us have changed. Any any strength coach or, or therapist at the at the show level, this is what we're doing. It's, it's not about how much weight they're moving. It's, it's how they're lifting it, how unstable. Well, the instability we're applying to show they can control it. Like just kneeling on a ball by itself and just taking a dumbbell and raising it to the side you instantly change your center of gravity because if i have a, an eight pound dumbbell and i'm kneeling on a ball and i do a side raise well eight pounds of force goes that way when well, my body has to counter and stabilize it without falling off the ball well what happens on the ice all the time somebody's pushing on you with force and you got to learn how to stabilize and counter back to it well a bench press won't train that a a a, a military press won't train that you know, a shoulder side raise standing on two feet won't train that. So, yeah, we have them on BOSUs. We have them on balls. We have them on rocker boards, wobble boards, bongo boards, all these different things. And then we occlude gaze. So we use the, the goggles uh, from La Mass and we'll occlude their vision like this and then make them bounce balls while still doing the same thing or make them do the same drill while they have to track something. Because um, you're, there's, from motor learning, there's things called contextual interference. It's a strategy to ingrain motor programs. If I want to work on your ankle stability, I'll be standing on a rocker board where you track a ball bouncing it with the opposite hand because now your frontal lobe's over here and your cerebellum, your primitive brain is controlling your ankle. And then that's how you get vision on the ice. You make the you make the motor program autonomic or limbic so you never think about it. It just happens. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what we do in today's world. We've been doing it since the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. It's just popular culture changed. And instead of reading a book or reading some research, we just said, oh, Johnny's doing this. This must be great. Well, that's case study level evidence. Johnny did, sure. He said he did that thing, but we don't know what else Johnny did. right? So just because Johnny did doesn't mean it's good. 
right? If, if Johnny swallowed some Windex, would you swallow some Windex? Right. It's, 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 the logic's kind of lost on us. And I think parents, and here's what I would say to it, is we have to stop the chatter in the stands uh, around who's doing what and what's doing what. Because pause, just because somebody's worked with one person doesn't mean they have the education. And in the Okanagan Valley, um, there is five people with graduate degrees in my field, five of us, that's it. Right, but there's a lot of people that profess to have a ton of knowledge, and I mean, it's not that having knowledge makes me better. Having knowledge makes me know that I know nothing. The more I learned, I was in grad school for six years. It just meant that I came out dumber because I didn't know anything. Because I realized we don't know anything really. It all depends upon the athlete, the population, and the study, and how we apply it. And that's where the magic comes. What makes you great is you understand. Okay, well, this might not fit this individual, but this one does, and this is how I'm going to use this aspect of it. Right? Yeah, I know. I love it. Take a short break from the episode to just talk about what's going on at Up My Hockey. My private practice is going really well and my inner circle is growing and doing amazing. The players in there are just fantastic. And it's it's so hard to talk about this. Like I need I feel like I need to share it because I do. Like you need to know what's happening inside Up My Hockey and with the players. But it's also hard to do it and not sound like I'm bragging because it's not about bragging. It's just about sharing the story about the personal development and the growth and the performance changes in the players that we are working with. It has been so fun. Like transformative is not too strong of a word. Breakthroughs are not too strong of a word. Like we are talking about tangible, visible differences in play. Sometimes as early as two weeks into the program, sometimes early, actually earlier as one week into the program, uh, there will be visual things that people will notice. Not to mention what that means for the athlete themselves, how they are feeling on the inside about what they are doing and accomplishing and the risks that they maybe are taking or the courage they are now playing with, the confidence that they, they now feel. Um, it's super exciting. It's super exciting. So I'm not going to get into any single specific stories right now. Uh, there are a couple that I want to share really, really bad, but we're waiting for a couple big things to happen. But um, the truth of the matter is, is that the Peak Potential Hockey Project has been changing hockey players. Now, whether that means you are a low confidence hockey player right now, whether you're in a slump right now, whether you're struggling in your season, it seems to be easier for those type of people to knock on the door and say, hey, what's up my hockey all about? But it's also working for players who are going along just fine. They are finding new layers to their game, new ways to add to their personal development and to their practice habits to give them the competitive advantage that they didn't even know they needed when they get out onto the ice. So check out the up, uh, the next Up My Hockey uh, Peak Potential Project. That's my four-week mindset program. The guided mission has just been a smashing hit. Uh, we have small group sizes. I walk through the program material with the players. Uh, every week we have a coaching call. And in four weeks, you are now armed with a database and a depth of knowledge and strategies that you didn't have before. Not only new tools and tips and techniques, but a greater understanding of who you are as an athlete and how you perform at your best. And when you know that, now you can do things so you can consistently operate at your highest frequency. 
So lots of good things going on. Once you do graduate the Peak Potential Project, that's when you are now eligible to work with me either as a private client or join my inner circle, uh, which is a group that meets every two weeks. And that's been a really heartwarming group for me that um, what they're accomplishing there, how they support each other, how they are now coaching even each other. I believe, honestly believe that they're learning more from each other than they are from me. And now I'm facilitating this group of, uh, of leaders uh, that is, you know, charging down their own path and getting to where they want to go. So that's been a lot of fun too. So upmyhockey.com, see what we're doing there. If you have not participated in the Peak Potential Hockey Project, I highly recommend it. Um, it could be a game changer you're looking for. Now let's get back to the episode with James Wendland. The story and the conversation needs to change, even amongst the athletes. I mean, I know, I, I, I mean, testosterone in a 14-year-old boy who's playing at the, you know, at the highest league, and they want to talk about what they can bench press and what somebody can squat, and even all these, all these metrics that really mean nothing. And they also want, they also do care what they look like in the mirror, as we all do, right? So they want to have this aesthetic that looks good, like that they look like they're, that they're strong, right? And they do all want to put on weight. Uh, so like you're having that struggle because like they want to, they want to play that, that arms race, you know, amongst themselves that they think is important. Um, but it's really not helping, uh, in its own way. So it's, it's a tough, it's a tough road to hoe and it's, and it's like trying to get them, uh, to believe these conversations that you and I are having. And, um, like it's a calisthenics based program, uh, and but by, by that I mean I mean body weight. Now when I'm watching some of these things, whether it be online or Instagram or wherever, I'll see these guys. Like it seems like a push-up variation, like through different ranges of shoulder motion and like incorporating feet and you know, I mean all these. Like you can, that to me looks like almost like what you're talking about, right? Yeah, it's, so it's primitive movement patterns. It's primitive movement patterns, but incorporated some instability and it's dynamic in a way. And it's not the be all end all. That that's just the foundation. If you don't have all of the primitive motor programs done that you you were gifted with at birth, if they're not fully developed through multiple sports and multiple training stimulus, then you need to focus there first because your ability to apply force and absorb force will be greater with those primitive movement programs done. So calisthenic basic, like I, and I said at the beginning, if you can't stand on one foot with your eyes closed, why would I give you a dumbbell? It makes right. no sense. You can't control your body. So it doesn't matter how heavy the dumbbell is. I know I can knock you over the second you're on one foot. I can do it with one finger. And this is what I do all the time with that. They say, hey, you want to be strong? Great. Let's look how strong you are. It's what I just did to that West Side Warrior kid Wednesday. I beat him with my pinkies. And I said, okay. And I held my pinky there. And I said, now push back. Move my finger. And it's my pinky finger. He has two hands and his entire upper body to swing at me. And I'm holding with my pinky. And he couldn't even recruit properly to do it. And this is a big guy with, with NHL lineage in his family. And I could just beat him with my pinky finger. He's right. humbled, and he sent me a wonderful email yesterday morning, actually, because he asked for homework, and that's what I love. When an athlete asks me for homework, uh, if you give me 10, I'll give you 100. If you don't give me anything, I'm going to give you nothing. Right? Right. But he asked for homework. I sent him some homework. He started doing it right away, and he reached out. He said, you know what? I want to come back next week. I really understand what you did to me because I was playing with his neurology. We don't play with the neurology enough. It's your neurology is what controls your entire body. Your ability to apply a force in multiple angles is neurology. Right. And yeah. we're we're so focused on the size of our bicep versus the quality of its recruitment. Yeah. And that's the challenge. I love that. Uh I circle here and I want to bring back to it uh we still have to talk about feet, but aerobic versus anaerobic. Um yeah. so back again, back, back when I played, um, it's my only reference point. Uh, the bike was a pretty big thing, 
and mm -hmm. and we were doing fairly long rides you know I mean up to sometimes 90 minutes so that that wasn't very frequent you know what i mean 60 sometimes usually in the 30 minute range um and then we also do some uh you know sprint based stuff of course too but there was definitely a bike component to to training uh, I, I lived on a bike I, for whatever reason, like I never liked running. I, I liked the bike. To me, it was just kind of a, a, a better place for me. Mm -hmm. I still think there's value there personally, but I don't see anyone doing rides. Like I don't see any of these kids doing rides. Like, is, am I missing something or can you talk to me about that? Like the training, the aerobic capacity, is there, is there, is that still a thing or should we only be training anaerobically? Uh, it, it's weird. Once again, this is all ass backwards again. Somebody listened to a podcast run by Johnny's Crack Shack, and now we're just doing what Johnny's Crack Shack's done. Um, this is like you're right in the wheelhouse of my graduate work. This is 10 years of me at UBC dissecting, researching, testing athletes and human beings. Um, so we operate on primitively. I'm just going to use the five-zone model, right? The five-zone model is the easiest one. You can delineate it down to hemoglobin disassociation of the muscle level and get to an 11-zone model if you want to. Reality is for hockey, it's a five-zone model. So zone one is rest. It's you sitting on the couch. You know, eating some potato chips, drinking some water, you know, hopefully water. Um, you know, that's zone one. Zone two is beta oxidation. Now, that's your long, slow rides. That's where you're developing your fat metabolism. Zone three is aerobic glycolysis. We call that junk miles. It's a waste of time. You are not even near training. Zone four is your lactate threshold. Zone five is your phosphagin system, phosphocreatine. And you can't improve them through supplementation, so stop taking it. Um, but your focus should be on zone two and zone four. Zone two, beta oxidative, your ability to catabolize fat for energy. And here's why. A molecule of triglyceride versus a molecule of glucose, aerobically. The molecule of triglyceride produces over 400 molecules of adenosine triphosphate just because of its complexity. Three fatty acids on the glycerol backbone, triglyceride. A molecule of glucose, not glycogen, but glucose, aerobically only produces 32 ATP. So what investment do I want? So beta oxidation should be two, three times a week, 90 minutes. You should be able to say 15 words comfortably without any duress, and you know you're in beta oxidation. The second you say that again, sorry, say that again. So if you're training that phase, what's happening? So beta oxidation, you're going for your ride, you're on the bike, and the bike is the best modality for a skater because it's the most one that simulates the joint angles of skating when they're on a crouch. It's why we test on a bike. It's why all the science was around a bike. Goalies should run. Skaters should bike simple you don't train a goalie like a skater you don't train a skater like a goalie now if you can say 15 words comfortably on the bike without losing your breath without having to exert you know you're in beta oxidation and you're training beta oxidation the second you can only say six to eight you've now gone into aerobic glycolysis right which is junk miles it is a waste of time the only sport that requires aerobic glycolysis to be trained is half marathoners and you are not a half marathoner now your lactate threshold that's that phase where things suck and it burns if I'm going to do lactate threshold training, which we call zone four, and this is why I used to draw players' blood. I have, I still have a YSI cell icing analyzer in my gym. That's what I used to use. It's the gold standard, not not a handheld. They're inaccurate. So I'd use the cell icing one, and at four millimoles is when you go anaerobic. Four millimoles to 4.5, depending on training status, to satisfy some of the more um, critics out there. But around four millimoles for the average person. So when you train, your zone four rides, lactate threshold, should be at 4.5 for three minutes and 3.5 for three minutes. So you're going to go into the world where, dear God, this really sucks. I'm going to throw up. I want to quit. And then for three minutes, you're going to be like, wow, this still really sucks, but I can kind of breathe a little bit better. And that's only twice a week. 
and you do that for three to five rounds so 18 minutes to 30 minutes max and if you just did that and you did the beta oxidative and zone so we look at it this way if zone two and zone four improve what happens to zone three it just comes along for the ride it naturally changes and i didn't waste any time but yet i've pushed my lactate threshold up so now to go that's that's on the five zone model and to go back into cardiovascular side a ford wants a vo2 max north of 60. ideally because then i know they have the left ventricular hypertrophy i know they have the hemoglobin i know they have the hematic or hemoglobin to, to carry oxygen only have the capillary density to supply oxygen okay that's what i want there um now that's a forward a defenseman we used to let them get away with 55 because they're generally bigger heavier slower um ideally around 60 would be great because then you have that ability to supply blood and flush out metabolites now your lactate threshold so in hockey it's a unique sport where cardiovascular so aerobic and anaerobic are equally important it's not this it's not that they matter both so my anaerobic side, I want to get my lactate threshold to 95% of my VO2 max. That's the maximum we can get that to go to. And you can. And I can talk about numerous players that I've worked with over the times, rockets that have gone on. I have a rocket that's with uh, Henderson Knights right now. Though During COVID, it was a blessing. We worked together six days a week for a year and a half. Um, so I'll, one name I can mention, because he has permission for it, so Shravius from the Rockets, the goalie. When he first came in, his fat metabolism turned off at 5.5 miles per hour on the treadmill and his lactate threshold was at seven. By the end of our training time, when he went back to camp, he could run at nine miles an hour on a treadmill aerobically because we we're drawing blood every four weeks and we we're changing his training stress every four weeks. So nine miles an hour, still aerobic. Beta oxidation turned off at 7.8 miles per hour. And what that meant was when he was sitting on a couch, 70% of his energy was coming from fat, 30 from carbs. Your average hockey player that's out there doing junk miles and crappy training, 60% is carbohydrates, 40% is fat. They don't know how to utilize fat for energy. So therefore, they're missing out on that 400 molecules of ATP for one molecule of triglyceride, which means in the third period, they haven't been sparing glycogen, so they bonk. They fall apart. They have no more gas left in the tank, all because the training wasn't correct. So aerobic, anaerobic, equally important. There's foundations that are out there, and there's so much science around this that I want to scream from the pillars at times. So, okay, so then you talked about it sounds kind of like interval training you're you're talking about the level four to five like you so you're you're getting your heart rate to a spot like you said that it sucks like that's that's almost getting to max and then you're coming back down letting it recover a little bit am i understanding yeah so it's it's specific to the millimoles of blood lactate in your system so you're anaerobic at four millimoles that's the crossover point where the system shuts off beta oxidation your fat metabolism shuts off at two millimoles so when I say the 15 words comfortably, that means you're generally below two millimoles, right? Now, the problem with your fat metabolism, when it turns off, it never turns back on again unless you sit still for 10 minutes and restart with a warm-up. So if you violate the two millimoles, you're never training beta oxidation, which is what most people do. They go for a run on the flats, but then they sprint up a hill. No, you just went into aerobic glycolysis, and now beta oxidation will never turn on again, and the entire rest of that training session is a waste. Now, when it comes to the interval stuff, you're correct. It is an interval. You're doing three minutes just above the lactate threshold and three minutes just below because you have to adopt an over-under strategy that's tight because you're trying to push this threshold to the right, so I have to hang here. And the only way you truly know where that is is like by the end of that three minutes, your legs are on fire and you're feeling nauseous. Like you feel like you want to throw up. Then you drop back down and your body just gets a chance to flush out enough metabolite that you're not nauseous anymore. And then you repeat it. The first time you do this, making three rounds, it's hard. 
But at the end of three to four weeks of doing it, you're making five. And then good news, we retest you and it gets harder. Right. Because we're trying to nudge you. So for athletes out there that would like to adopt this, um, mm. and again, to try and make it simpler, obviously, I, I don't think more, many people are going to be drying their blood while they're doing this. Like, yeah. Can you do this with a heart rate monitor? Kind of, you, can, kind of you, you can use a heart monitor. The easiest way to do it, though, is if you're, so say you're going to be on a treadmill, okay? So running on a treadmill, 1% incline, okay? Every minute, increase the speed by half mile. And once you get seven miles per hour, if you're still running, it's easy, start increasing it by 1% per minute on the incline until you fail. You'll know what your max speed is. And you're gonna know the point at which your breath rate went out of control, where you couldn't hold it anymore. And you're gonna know when those muscles started to burn. It's before you actually quit. Because zone five is phosphagin, and that's that last you know 30 seconds of a run, right, at max. You'll know that exact moment when, you, when things burnt and your breath rate went out. And whatever that speed was, dial it back down a half mile an hour and that's your lactic threshold and you just go over under over under on a bike same thing start the bike at say well, it's hard for untrained people i would probably say 60 watts to start and then increase it by depending on training status if you're untrained 15 watts every minute if you're trained then 30 watts every minute uh, and same thing until you fail but keep track of your heart rate keep track of your breath rate and just mention if somebody's there with you with a clipboard mention how you feel like oh dear god i'm feeling some burning now the second you start to feel burning it means your onset above lactates occurred you're accumulating lactic acid that's why it's burning so you're above your lactate threshold wherever that point occurred in wattages you now can guesstimate where the lactate threshold is or bring it back down and say 30 watts and then do another over under again that's how you can pinpoint it for the average person i mean you can do a vo2 max test they're about you know 150 bucks blood lactate testing is usually around 185. it's expensive and for youth out there just get on a bike, start at your 60 watts, go up in 15 to 30 watt intervals based on training status and figure out when you fail. But log, check the heart rates as you go because you see this exponential spike. Because when I go anaerobic, my breath rate picks up because of the CO2 and my heart rate picks up because it has to flush out that blood and carbon dioxide. So you can see a break point on the graph where they just go, they're here and all of a sudden go think like that. This here is your lactate threshold right there where you go dink and you start pulling. So you can pinpoint it that way. Okay, so using a heart rate runner would be good yeah. on that. Um, does that have anything to do with uh, FTP? Like that's something that I've been on the Peloton now for like I don't know whatever it is five months, and I'm I'm re re uh, <laughs> sparking my passion. Let's say again with the bike that I hadn't been on in like 15 years. So it, it's 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 been fun. I enjoy the training sessions. I like the sweat that I get on them, and I definitely feel better. Uh, but one of the things I like to gamify it, and and so they're doing these FTP tests. Um, is, is is that does that number mean anything in what you're talking about right now? So I'm not overly familiar with the Peloton software. What FTP stands for is an acronym. functional threshold power. Uh, okay, so yeah, so they're like, that's good. They're just, basically it's probably ventilatory threshold, which is a mixture of uh, lactate and uh, and the heart rate deviation. Um, so yeah, it's measuring basically where your threshold is, your ability to produce power, uh, the max ability to produce power while still using oxygen. Is what they're going to look at with that one and it is a measure of fitness the ftp side of it the higher that number goes it means that the further your lactate threshold is moving to the right which means you can work harder without developing that burn or that fatigue uh, for longer periods of time so yes it's valid on that way i mean every program has their own way of going about it i mean you look at orange theory they use 
you know, you're in the red zone or you're in the orange zone or whatever. Right. It's all similar things. It comes back to heart rate and blood lactates ultimately. They run a 20 minute test. I mean, it kind of seems almost similar to the F, uh, I mean, to the Wingate, uh, yeah. just in a longer duration. Like you're going as hard as you can, essentially for as long as you can. Like how, how yeah. much wattage can, can you, can you produce? um is, is what they're doing with that and it's so i get all kind of psycho about it and trying to and trying to get get more and higher and anyways it, that's fun for me but um there's different programs they have on there too you know so i'm just trying to anyways listen to what you're saying and how that how that would apply uh, this level two thing that sounds like that's almost like you're at a walk in the park the entire time like and, and how long do we do that for uh minimum 40 minutes and as long as you demo one uh, really yeah oh yeah no it, it's it's the more the better so you look at it this way. So now your lactate threshold, if I form a, a little dome, okay, like like trying to line up my camera here, right? Your lactate threshold will make the height of the dome higher, right? But what makes the dome wider is that zone two of the beta oxidation because that increases the width of the dome, whereas lactate threshold increases the height of the dome. So your power is going up, but then your capacity to continue to produce that power goes up with that, that long, slow distance or that beta oxidative side. Right, because you're training your body to spare glycogen for higher intensities at a later state. Right. Um, so like one of the guys I worked with during the COVID period, he ended up down in Tri-Cities and he was able to play 36 minutes a game, no problem. Repeatable, repeatable, repeatable. And it's because he was running, he was the fastest one, and uh, you know, he'd love me to drop to me, but I won't just because I won't give him the ego. Uh, but he was 9.2 miles an hour before he went anaerobic on the treadmill. So which means he could run at 9.2 miles an hour. So long as he had glycogen in his muscles and food in his belly, he could run that forever. That's fast. And most people listening to this probably can't run past eight on a treadmill, but 9.2, you know, then we can get into a whole entire conversation around supermaxing and which kind of blows the lactate threshold out of the, out of the water. Um, and so he trained that though from not trying hard on a, on, on he ride? He trained it by doing beta oxidation and then doing two days a week of that zone four training, the interval training. And over the course of the time we worked together, because... I was drawing his blood and testing his VO2 max every fourth or fifth week. So I constantly changed the stimulus or increased the stimulus form because his numbers were changing. Gotcha. And literally, by the time we went back to season, it's all of them will say it's the fittest, the fastest they've ever felt because we did it by the science, right? Yep. And that's the challenge we have is neither one thing's better nor worse than the other. They're all good. Just learn how to apply them and learn how to apply them into relation to what your weaknesses actually are. Don't do what you're strong in. Focus on what you're weak in, right? It's as simple as that. With um, so this one last question on that on that yeah. level two thing. So like that is that like a heart rate around 100, 110? Like if we can use that it's scenario, or well, but yeah. So I mean, generally on a bike, probably most people below 105 is what I would say. But it's it's individualized. Like so for me, um, my beta oxidation. Like I was I, I literally right beside me here. I actually have a bike right in my my uh, front office area. Um, I was on it this morning and I mean, I'm riding at, I was at 125 Watts and my heart rate was only 93. So my zone, my zone two is significantly different than others because I've trained it for over 23 years. I mean, I've been doing the science for 25 years now. It's like, so for me to get above a zone, 105, I have to be around 160 Watts. A lot of people fail at 160 Watts, right? That's their end zone. I mean, I have a Canuck that's infamous. I punched out the league and ended up overseas for some behaviors. Um, he maxed out on a, on a VO2 max test at 168 watts. Had a VO2 max of 35, which is an unfit female. Right. Right. And that's a show guy that wasn't training properly, but didn't end well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so then 
Okay, but but for the general, again, to, to general, could, could you said it's really important. Fifteen words comfortably while you're exercising, you're in beta oxidation. It's the best way to put it, because as you cross your aerobic threshold, your CO2 production goes up. So then, comfortably is now six to eight words. If you're above your lactate threshold, you can give one word answers. Is this hard? Yes. That's all you can say, right? So if you follow that lens and then correlate that to a heart rate, it would probably be the most accurate. Like gotcha. I'm riding the bike and I can say fifteen words comfortably. What's my heart rate? The second I can drop to only six to eight, what's my heart rate? Then I can figure my zones up that way too. Okay. Well, 15 to me sounds like you probably just keep talking. Like it's, it's like it's. Well, that's normal. exactly it. Beta oxidation. You should be able to have long winded conversations because right. you're, you're below 2 millimoles of lactic acid. So, and you can, so for like my son, for instance, who, uh, again, I'm having this conversation through that lens right now, uh, seems to like have a hard time, like, like end of his shift, let's say, like he, he seems to fall off more than others, right? Or like he comes home at the end of the day and he's really wiped where other kids are maybe able to go out and do whatever, right? Like it's, uh, these rides would potentially help him and he could like sit there and watch his suits or whatever he likes to do and sit on the bike for an hour as, as long as it's uh, it's 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 a slow, easy ride for him. That'll 100%, help. Because you're, yep. you're training him. So let's just think, okay, there's two versions of Jimmy here sitting in the chair, okay? One version of Jimmy is untrained in zone two. So I'm untrained in beta oxidation. So me sitting on a couch watching suits, not moving, I'm 60% carbohydrate, 40% fat for energy. Now I focus on my beta oxidation for three months. And then Jimmy comes back, sits on the couch, same position. I'm now instantly burning 70% fat 40 or 30% carbohydrate for energy because beta oxidation focuses on, a, on an enzyme shift. There's an enzyme in our body called hormone sensitive lipase that strips off a glycerol backbone and frees up the fatty acids for energy. Most people, and now I'm gonna say it this way, Jose is an acronym is how I'm gonna preposition this one. Most individuals have 500 little buggers named Henry that wanna store fat. You only got one little guy named Jose that's trying to mobilize fat, hormone sensitive lipase, right? So your, your ratios are off, 500 to one. So we burn the most amount of body fat while we're sleeping and resting. But by developing more Jose's, more hormone-sensitive lipase, increasing the concentrations of that enzyme by training specific to the pathway, so law specificity, um, we increase the enzyme abundance in our system. So therefore, we're able to draw out more fat during exercise at higher intensity to use for energy, which spares glycogen. Because males, specifically, yeah. during exercise, we are 100% muscle glycogen-based. Once that muscle glycogen is gone, we are done. It's why when you look at ultra marathons, they're co-ed and females consistently win because they have the blessing of estrogen. The blessings of estrogen is 50% blood glucose, 50% muscle glycogen. So they can, they're better at endurance. For men, if we're not supplementing properly, if we're not sparing glycogen by using beta oxidation, we bonk. And once we bonk, we're done. Can't move anywhere. And you've seen marathoners at the end. They're about to win. Next thing you know, that, that last 30 feet, they started to sprint and they bonk. Now they're trying to crawl and they can't even stand up because they have no more muscle glycogen. So if they would have just developed the beta oxidation a bit longer or followed the training pattern a bit better, or the race, the race strategy, I should say, they would have crossed that finish line and said somebody else went. Is that um, now it sounds like walking would be great for that. Like, yeah, or walk, does it matter? Walking, walking, walk. I call it walking with purpose. Yeah. I always say everywhere I go, I walk with purpose. I'm standing up tall, my chest is up a half inch, chin is tucked, and I'm going. I'm walking with purpose. I don't saunter. Yeah. Right? Okay, so there's park. If you're going to go to the mall, park as far as can, the furthest parking spot. Then get out of your car and walk with purpose. Yeah. Because you can have accumulated benefits. It's there's studies that have been done on this where they look at 30 minutes of activity, 
versus three 10 minute bouts of activity. And what they found is there's there's no different health benefit from doing three bouts of 10 versus 30 minutes. So if I have more frequent bouts that are shorter duration, it's still good for me, especially when it comes to beta oxidation. Now you can't say that with the anaerobic system, that needs some pretty good intensity in there. Um, but for aerobic glycolysis, yeah, more is better, more is better, more is better. And does that beta oxidation then apply to the muscle group that's being harnessed at the time? Like again, like if you want to be as, as, uh, as effective as possible, would a bike then be the best way to do that for an athlete? Well, it's the joint angles, but you can do it in any position. Beta oxidation is a global thing. It's enzyme storage inside your frame, right? So it's a global thing, beta oxidation. So, gotcha. so it, no, it doesn't matter what you're doing to activate. No, but the intensities are going to differ. So exercise on a bike, my arms aren't moving. So heart rates are going to be a little bit slower than if I were to go for a jog. Because if I jog, all of a sudden I'm bringing in my arms. So my arms have less capillary density, therefore heart rates are higher. Um, so we always have to go back to the 15 words comfortably is what I generally say. Yeah. Because um, if you can brisk walk, light jog and have a conversation, you're in beta oxidation. So um, on that lens. So to beat it to death is basically for hockey players, zone two, zone four. That is your yeah. priority. Um, and the zone three is crazy. So like me, me riding for half an hour at like whatever, 140 or something like that does nothing for me, you're saying? You are junk miles or, you know, my, my other, the other side, Jimmy would say you're, you're emotionally masturbating about training because you're not doing it. You're, you're doing nothing for your sport. You're literally, if I do zone three aerobic glycolysis, I'm pushing down beta oxidation. So I'm making it weaker because my body's developing the enzymes for aerobic glycolysis, not here. And I never touch my lactate threshold ever, ever. It doesn't improve by doing aerobic glycolysis. So I have to use zone two, zone four, and as those improve, zone three comes for the ride. It's like the the, the ugly cousin just hangs around. That's crazy. Hang. So you are you're not so you're talking that from an aerobic standpoint, like, like ability to to use oxygen. Is that is that what you're saying? Like my legs yeah, would still the ability, always... the ability to spare glycogen is what it technically is. Um, the longer, the higher your aerobic threshold is, which is where your crossover from beta oxidation is, and the higher your lactate threshold goes the longer you can use oxygen but the the longer you can also spare glycogen eventually you go anaerobic eventually the intensity gets high enough you're going to be anaerobic but if that occurs later in in a shift or, or duration of a shift when it does occur i now have more muscle glycogen still available to use so i can still right. push versus okay. being the guy so like take bertuzzi back in the day right um on the wind gate i mean his peak power was high i mean he had a decent peak power but his percent decrement sucked like 90 percent decrement Whereas you look at the Sedines, like, yeah, sure, Peak Bauer, not, not, that wasn't horrible, but wasn't great. I mean, they, they were around like, I think around 1,276 watts for Peak Bauer, but their percent decrement, the amount they dropped throughout that duration of the test was 55%. So they can go on the ice and they may have a lower Peak Bauer, but guess what? They can sustain it for the duration of the shift versus being the guy that goes, are oh, you super fast for 10 seconds? And then, man, you know, he's, you know, back in the day, Jobo shooting the puck in front of the goalie, right to another player, getting scored on because you're tired, because your right. decrement was ninety five percent. Gotcha. Right. Um, jumping. That's yeah. a that's a test all the time, you know. And I mean, hockey players aren't necessarily need to be jumpers. Basketball players are usually like from a direct use for your for uh, for the sport. Mm -hmm. But what is what? Why is someone able to jump higher than somebody else? Strength and mass ratio goes back to that again. Strength to mass ratio and then uh, recruitment of specific muscle fibers and then speed power training. Um, now, vertical jump. Uh, so I have a vertex in my gym. It's a vertical jump tester. You use it from a standing 
or from a crouch that's stable with no counter movement because you're trying to measure how much somebody can propel themselves in air which is a measure of their overall power now there's a certain average you want i mean i think draft average is around 24 inches i think is what it was um so if you're hitting 24 inches you don't need to train it anymore yeah you're not a basketball player but a vertical jump test tells you your strength to mass ratio the higher you jump the better strength to mass ratio you have which means technically the more explosive you are that's the only valid measure of that test it has nothing else to do with performance on ice all it tells me is you have the potential to be very explosive whether or not it translates into skates and, and alternate joint angles on ice i don't know right it just tells me one variable it's like a grip strength yeah. you know, like murray baron back in the day man i got a picture of me with him doing grip strength i look tiny i'm not a small man you know but that guy's hand he maxed out the grip strength tester every single time maxed it over 90 kilograms of force Right? That's why they called him the bear. Wow. And he could also bench press 225 pounds 43 times. Right? Well, he was a good player. He was a demon. You're scared of him. He's huge. Occupied a lot of space. But, you know, I, did he have great skills other ways? No, not really. Yeah. You know. You you mentioned uh, once you reach average, don't worry about it anymore. Why do you say that? Like, why wouldn't you want to be 30 instead of 24? Well, okay. Here's what I'll say to that. Now, again, I'm just saying the majority of individuals are not meeting the positional average on all fronts now if you are a positional average on all fronts then sure as crap focus on what's going to matter right if you're already at positional averages for everything now look where you can maximize right so if i'm at positional average as a goalie for all measured athleticism well now i'm just going to focus on tracking right i have all i'm going to maintain all that i'm still going to work and maintain it but now I'm yeah. going to focus on my gaze orientation, my tracking. I'm going to focus on my mobility, my neck alignments, my, my motility, my motricity, all these other good things, right? Yeah. Now, for an athlete that's out there, if they're a forward and they're meeting all the positional demands for their age and for their the highest level they can get to at that age range, well, then, yeah, and I'll start focusing on something that's going to give them a benefit. And for me, the majority of the time for these kids, it's neurology. They don't know how to coordinate their body properly. If you develop neurology, you'll see such a change in their performance on the ice. Well, that's where I thought maybe that jump, my jump question was going, because like, mm -hmm. to me, it's an interesting thing. Like you, it, we, we can do plyometrics and there's these things that I think hockey players kind of understand and lateral bounding, you jump on boxes and this type of stuff. You can do that weighted with a vest. Um, you know, like I, I don't really know you can squat. I mean, there's some, there's things that you can do that you think would help. Um, yet the feet have a lot to do and your ankle strength and and these other things would have a lot to do with that explosiveness like how how do you go about ex generating explosive power if you were something that was below average in that what would you what would you recommend a, a player to do well so plyometrics is one thing but prior to plyometrics joint kinematics do they understand how to actually align themselves properly because a lot of kids nowadays are taught by by coaches to push their knees out when they do activities, to push their knees out outside of their feet or widen their knees. Well, that's actually the opposite of athleticism. Um, your foot is a spring, right? So you've got tarsals, you've got metatarsals, you've got phalanges, right? There's So the tarsals are kind of like the, the, the top end of the ankle up here. Metatarsals are the long bones. These are my phalanges out on the end, right? So for the foot, if I open my knee up and take it outside of my big toe laterally, I unlock the tarsals so I don't have a stable spring to push off of. If I bring my patella or my kneecap inside my big toe, now I lock out my tarsals and I tension the natural spring. So now I have a greater ability to transfer and apply a rapid force. 
So joint kinematics is a huge one at first, and that's body awareness. Plyometrics is also another magical way to get there because your gastrocnemius, your calf muscle, has the most amount of muscle fibers per motor neuron of any muscle in the body. It's like 1,800 muscle fibers plus per motor neuron. Whereas in my index finger, I have like 20 per more because it's fine motor control. Your gastrox and your butt cheeks are jumping muscles. That's all they are, jumping. Right? They're not postural, they're the jump. Okay? Now your hamstrings, your, your paraspinals, and your calves will hold you upright for posture, but gastrox and butt cheeks or, or glutes, glute max, those are your jumping muscles. So plyometrics there, but plyometrics are also done very wrong. If you look at force plate data, the optimal drop height for a plyometric, based on force plate data, where they looked at force production, jump height, all the other stuff, it's 4.76 inches is all you have to drop to have the most effective plyometric. Now, any textbook you read in my field will speak to drops over 18 inches are damaging for the joint. They should never be done. Now, most plyo boxes start at 20 inches. If I'm dropping from 20 inches, I'm harming my tissues. And I'm, there's no transfer to plyometrics on that one because we have three phases to a plyometric. There's the eccentric load, the loading phase. Then there's the amortization phase, and that's the time between eccentric and then concentric explosion. And the unloading is that final phase, the concentric. Now, the longer the amortization phase is, the less we're actually training neurology and the less we're training explosion, the more heat we're generating and, and sort of the more uh, muscular and tendinous fatigue and injury we're going to generate. So this is where drop height matters. So a riser with or, uh, and one step is around 4.76 inches. That's all you need to drop up to maximize your plyometric height. And the other thing is when I look at plyos, um, a beginner, a beginner should never do more than 80 touches. And 80 touches is every time you have a bounce or a bound, that's a touch. Never more than 80. And a trained high-end athlete, never more than 120. 120 touches. So if I do 12 sets of 10, done over. But you should never do 10. You're talking about four to six quality explosive movements. The second the explosion drops off, stop. Take your three to five minutes rest. Do something else and then come back, right? That's proper plyometrics. Um, so give me an example. You're saying a drop. Like, so you're saying like for an athlete that would stand on a stair. Standing on a, on a stair that's 4.76 inches. And I drop to the ground and rapidly explode up to up to a box or, or up, up in the air and then catch my landing. Um, that bounce is one touch. I can do 80 of those for a beginner. But before okay. I ever get there, I have to train their feet and their awareness and their ability to lock out those tarsals. And this is where right now the cart is so far out of the barn and the horse is still in the pasture with how we're going about this stuff. And, we're, and especially for youth where their bones are growing. I mean, you think of it this way that I can't even tell you, Osgood Slatters, I see so many kids with this. Like the current's come in, he's got knee pain. Sure enough, I go to the tip of tuberosity and it's shearing. It's Osgood Slatters. Why does he have this? Way too much, way too much loading, way too much drop height at two of Asia. He's actually shearing the epiphyseal plate and the tibial tuberosity. And once I do that, guess what? My bones start to ossify early and I get a shorter leg, right? So why are we making children drop from these huge heights when the, optim the optimal height is 4.76 inches for everyone, right? So this is where plows is a bit wrong. More is not better. Science so it's not, it's a, you're saying it, it, the drop is important too, like uh, for a plyo. It's not uh, like that. You're off of something and then and then springing on. So you're, exactly. you're rolling. You have to have an eccentric load. You have to. Plyometrics involves an eccentric load. That is phase one. 
the loading phase is an eccentric. It's where you're dropping in and you're absorbing that force, which is taking elastic energy and storing it into the connective tissue of the muscle fiber and your tendon. Then the amortization phase is how quickly you get out of that into unloading, which is your concentric. Mm. That is a biometric. If there is no eccentric load, you are not doing biometrics. You're just jumping. Gotcha. And that sounds like something that athletes could be doing in season, correct? 100%. Plyometrics should be once a week, but 80 to 100, max 120 touches based on training. And I can share a story with it. I had a guy down in San Jose. Um, you know, he had hip surgery. Um, or sorry, actually, no, this one broke. So he broke his tip fib. Sorry. Um, and he had it surgically reconstructed. And then San Jose sent him to a trainer down there that put him on a plyometric program that was done in a circuit format so the first round of plyometrics was 360 touches in total so this was a, a young nhl defenseman he's currently playing with he managed to get a two-year deal i worked with him for a little while to fix him um but he blew his achilles tendon on the last drill of that first circuit completely ruptured it torn because the plyometrics was 380 and it was his first day there first time doing it because the coach had him dropping from heights of 18 to 22 inches and he did 360 reps in one round in a circuit format without any rest it's irresponsible like that you almost wrecked a guy's career and the right. same thing with youth 80 touches max for you max sometimes 40 is better because if they can't walk the next day when well, i damage the fibers plyometrics is not about damaging fibers it's about training your body to store elastic energy and immediately recruit it to increase jump height that's a plyometric. That's what it's for. So 40 to 80 touches, 4.76 inches max. Sometimes less is better too. But then when they hit the floor, they're dropping from that height into the boiling waters of Beelzebub with piranhas and crocodiles, which means they're off the floor as quick as they can. Because if the amortization phase is too long, they hit, they stop, and then they jump. Well, all they've done is made themselves sweaty and produce some heat. They haven't trained plyometrics either. So there's three phases, loading, amortization, and unloading. They're all equally important. They all need to be there. Otherwise, it's not a biometric. Gotcha. And then, yeah, when, when you are, and then when you are hitting that, when you're hitting the floor and you're and you're springing off of it, you, you're you're trying to be in the air for as long as possible. Hundred percent. You're trying to right? float. I always say to my boys, you're trying to float like a pretty little butterfly. Flat right. Right. And now is that floor. is that like is that would you say that's a one rep kind of thing, or do you would you do that like? I don't know, like onto you the box, do, off you the do box. Four to six. You can do four to six reps, but then you need five, three to five minutes recovery, depending on the intensity. If you're adding weight, then you need at least five minutes. The weighted vest thing, I mean, if the amortization phase isn't isn't dialed, take the vest off. Like if they're spending too long, if the ground contact time is too long, the yeah. weighted vest is actually ruining the plow, right? right? So you always want to make sure that when you go back to the science, it's, it's this, right? So here's my loading phase. Here's my unloading phase. This middle part has to be as short as possible, like milliseconds. And... You can see a change. So if you're having somebody do plyos, what I would suggest is, is hold it back a little bit on the third or fourth rep as they come off the box. And right when they touch the ground, scream at them and scare the pants out of them. They will instantly jump four to six inches higher because they instantly show it in the amortization phase. So yeah. all the elastic energy goes. And when you do that, and their brain's like, oh, my God, I just jumped higher. And then they start to remember to be more explosive or quicker off the ground. Right. Right. And you'll see videos, uh, Instagram videos of trainers doing plows where they, they jump off a box, they stop, and you can really count one second, then they move sideways, and they say it's a plow. That's not a plow. That's just an eccentric load. That's all it is. Now, eccentric load training is positive for tendon health. Your tendons develop under eccentric loads. So that's totally fine. 
but it's not oh. a plyo, right? Gotcha. Yeah. And so is another version of a plyometric, like, a, like say a single foot bound, like three in a row or four in a row, like without like dropping, but you're dropping from your, from your jump. Yeah. If you're doing bounds and, but as long as the bounds are quick right. and rapid and you're focused on the third bound, the second bound should be higher than the first and the third bound should be higher than the second. That's a plow because you should, you will literally see the elastic energy build as they bound. That is still you, plow because you're still coming and a single leg bound, you're probably around four inches. Yeah. And you're talking about three to five reps of that. Like you'd, you would yeah, go three to five to reps five. of that is three to five touches. Yeah. So if I do five sets of say five reps of that, well, it's 25 touches on one leg, 25 on that's 50 touches. I only get 30 more. You're almost done. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you're only saying once a week for that. For that, for the plow stuff, yeah, in the youth, yeah. I mean, yeah. more advanced players, like a dub kid or an AHL guy, probably get two in, but no more than two. Because there's okay. other stuff you got to focus on. If, if I can't get my shoulder back here, well, maybe I might want to work on my shoulder another day of the week, too. Right? So everything's equal. It's a pie. Everything matters. How you carry yourself on your feet obviously does matter too. And you gave me that balance board. And that's one thing, again, anecdotally from me, first person, I had I had horrible ankle pain that had some back pain as a youth. And my uh, was told to wear orthotics, right? That's And seems like that is still like a trigger move for a lot of players like to, mm -hmm. to instantly get these orthotics assigned. I always philosophically disagreed. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like, why am I getting like my feet should be able to do this. Like, I should be training my feet. And anyways... <laughs> Uh, I, I ended up, yeah, working on my feet kind of through, through uh, five finger Vibram training was one of the things that I did just like having a foot that put a uh, shoe that put me in a spot where I had to mm -hmm. hold myself. Um, but how do we, yeah. Is there such a thing as training feet? Uh, and, and how do, how do athletes know if they should be looking at that or not? There, there's yes, there's decades of research, decades of research on this. I have an entire lecture on proprioception and balance it, 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 it's to quote happy gilmore it's all in the feet you got to start there as an osteo first thing we say is it's all in the hips that's that we go it's all in the feet because there's an upward kinetic chain to that one so training your feet is pivotal so the rocker board that i gave you i was trying to teach you first off center of gravity how to actually balance two limbs properly because if you can't balance it on the rocker board well when you squat guess what you're training dominance all right now a rocker board's great because you can work on your, your inside-outside edge in isolation, and you can work on your skate rocker in isolation. Now, orthotics, I just want to touch on that one. If my longitudinal arch is collapsing and I give myself an orthotic, well, the collapsing is a symptom. It's collapsing. That's the symptom. What's the mechanism? Well, I know I've got a muscle called flexor hallucis brevis. I know that flexor hallucis long. There's one called tibialis anterior. Those muscles pull up the longitudinal arch. So... If I'm not working on my feet and strengthening those muscles, what might happen to a longitudinal arch? What might collapse? Okay, so then I get my orthotics. So now I have a hard piece of plastic that's now supporting my arch. So what happens to the muscles? Well, Got your feet even more. Exactly. So now I can't even walk in bare feet on the sand anymore because it hurts so much, right? So, yes, there's foot drills you do just to strengthen those muscles specifically. There's the flexor extensor mechanism, the ability to lift your big toes in isolation, then push your big toe down and lift every other toe. This here. Is teaching yourself inside edge, outside edge, inside. So in my skate, if I push my big toe down on on my right side, well, guess what? I lock up my right inside edge. I go left. If I can't lock that big toe out, well, then I slide my blade instead of having a crisp movement sideways, right? And you'll see this in goaltenders. Watch goaltenders in that. There's some that arc, and then there's some like Bass, Vasilevsky, that are completely lateral. 
Vasilevsky can get that towage down instantly and hard. And if you look at his tracking, he's tracking on one plane, only horizontal, right? Whereas his other guys that arc. So now they're controlling gaze on two planes. And if they arc high enough that their eyes come above the board, they're praying to Jesus. The puck hits him in the chest. That's all they're doing because they can't see it anymore. So your feet matter for performance in all positions. And now it's also your primary balance center. Your, your fat pads at the bottom of your feet are pressure sensors. They're literally telling your brain anterior, posterior sway. That's what they're telling you. Okay. And then in the joint, I talked about the mechanoreceptors. They're telling your brain capsule stretch, ligament stretch, and joint position. But if I don't work on training that and connecting my brain and my foot together on ice, I have no awareness of where I am. And I like literally th these four warrior kids that I had in on Wednesdays as part of a little demo day, um, they couldn't stand on the rocker board with one foot. They stepped on it and they were shaken doing the funky chicken and falling off because their brain had no idea how to stabilize the foot nor recruit the muscles in that isolation. Now they can skate because they cheat with momentum. When I have momentum, I can balance. But the second I stand still, I'm, I'm like a stick, right? And, and that's where we get back to the feed. It's pivotal because if I can't lock out my, my big toe or my first metatarsal, um, I don't lock out my foot. And therefore, I don't have a proper transfer of load through my stride which then can lead to upward kinetic chain issues like back pain right yeah because i was wondering like i mean single foot balance like just standing on one leg i mean i thought okay well then maybe that'd be a good place to start but i mean you could have a collapsed arch while you're doing that and then figure out a way to balance so i'm like well maybe that's not the really the great best place to start like you really do need to start just with the foot to understand how to even hold yourself properly well, that's exactly right? it so flex your extensor and then put a towel on the ground put your feet on the towel and start squishing the towel towards you with your toes. And once it's all the way in, then push it away with you. Now you're working on your actual musculature. Okay? Gotcha. Right? If you can do it that way, well, that's where the magic kind of comes in. That's what I felt. I felt like once I felt like about my foot, I could all, I was almost gripping the ground kind of in a way, or I was able to like, you know, like apply pressure throughout my entire foot. Was That was when I kind of knew that I was going the right direction. Like, whereas before I wouldn't really understand right like i was just well, they were just there um yeah. and i do think that's a huge thing for any hockey players that are listening now or parents like that is and talk about athleticism again you're gonna be a better athlete too with doing that and i think that's a great place to start for as far as edge work and and the stuff you're talking about agility and balance understanding your feet and not just having them locked in these boots is uh that's exactly it's something that we don't that's something that they don't do anymore yeah. uh, and that's the frustration that i have is like we 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 did a great job of it back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We were so focused on it. It's starting to make a resurgence. Now you're seeing some Instagram posts and people out there that are sort of catching on to it. The understanding fully isn't there a lot, but it's working the feet in any which way you can. Bare feet. Like I have Vibrams that I train in. I have a gym pair. I have a hiking pair. When I do my ball work, because you know, I'll challenge anyone out here, come to my gym and I'll beat you on the ball. You know you're going to get past me. Um, I mean, you know, I can kneel on it. I can take one knee off and still stay kneeling on the ball with one knee in the air, right? Because I have that level of hip stability and hip recruitment, and therefore I never get injured, right? I mean, I'm a 46-year-old man. I shouldn't be able to beat you young guys. Right, um, right. You know, but it, it's, yep. Is, uh, is even taking your feet out of shoes and sandals, is that just a good place to start too? That's walking around? Oh, like literally, right. in, in the gym, none of my boys wear shoes. You leave them outside the door. I don't right. want them on the gym floor because I want your feet to work, right? Oh, there you go. And, yeah, and in, your, in your skates, do you have really super comfy foam that puts you on an anterior slant? Or are you no. just on a hard surface yeah. with your foot, right? Well, then, okay, learn how to train that way. Because a lot of people don't realize 
most running shoes are nothing but high heels. You got this two inch lift in the back with like maybe a half inch lift in the front. So it's literally changing your gait and leaning forward, which makes you want to go forward only. Well, if you train in bare feet, now you have your natural movement. Because in your skate, your skates have a rocker. They don't make you lean forward, nor do they make you lean backwards. You got to learn how to balance. So if you're not balancing on your rocker, nor are you balancing evenly on your inside outside edges, you can't push certain ways. Because if I can't, if I'm sort of more leaning to my outside edge because I have weak um, invert, I have weak everters, or is what I'm going to say, or prone as long as prone as brevis is what I'd say. If they're weak, so I'm on my outside edge. Well, for me to go to the left, I now have to spend a hundredth or two hundredths of seconds straightening my edge out first before I can lock out to push left. Now I'm a stride behind the player, right? So it no. matters so much that awareness in the feet. Okay, my last one. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back uh, again. We're live in the parent group right now, which I never said. So for those listening, I do have a Facebook group uh, online uh, saying, called the Up My Hockey Parent Group. Uh, almost 3,000 members in there now. And we uh, we talked to James before, and we might come back in there for a Q&A. So if you are a hockey parent listening anywhere and you have Facebook, uh, we do some cool stuff like this in there sometimes, along with talking about the mindset stuff that, that I am so passionate about and help players with. So a uh, little shout out there to the Facebook group um, and that James may be back for a Q&A. But my last question is about mobility and is about uh, stretching. So, again, it's great because I have these these uh, these hamsters in, in my house, meaning my sons, right, that all want to be hockey players. And I get to see them and have the have the, uh, you know, like my experience. Now I can see through a different lens kind of what they're going through, and what they want to be and and uh, hopefully help them along the way. But, but they're all they're all relatively well, not relatively. The two forwards are very stiff, both of them. My goalie is is quite flexible, like maybe naturally because of the because of uh, his position. Uh, but I'm talking hip stiff through the hips, stiff through the groin, stiff through the through the hamstrings. What is the best way to increase mobility? Uh, and not only from injury prevention, but can you speak to injury prevention and also like range of motion and how that ex, uh, extrapolates it or turns into power and and force. Oh, 100 percent. So uh, muscle energy technique is what it's going to be at first, and it's not PNF. Um, PNF is a way more force and uh, the person's pushing back against you hard. Muscle and technique is your ear. So I take my hamstring and I do a, a straight leg raise. It's gluten hamstrings. So a straight leg raise. Most people pull it to the point where they're feeling a burn. And that means their muscle spindles are already firing because the burning sensation is your muscle spindle saying, hey, I'm going to tear, please stop, right? Um, when you go to that level, that's PNF. Muscle energy is where you lift the leg up and you find that first level of resistance, that first little nervousness of the central nervous system where it kind of kicks on and blocks you. It's like, hey, you stop there. And then the individual applies a 10% effort and you don't push back. You just block the motion and hold them there. And you do that for 10 seconds, let go, cycle the joint, come back to the new feather barrier, do it three to five, you'll get the range of motion. Um, we're all run with this one is this take hip impaction because I have you know, uh, a guy in Pittsburgh right now, he's AHL, ECHL, right, trying to fight his way up. He's, I think he's AHL right now. Uh, Hamilook, he had a pincer and a cam lesion in his hip from impaction. Forward, never stretched, hips got super tight. Well, if your hips are tight, you got to look at what the anatomy of the muscles are doing. So we know your glute extends the leg, but your glute also takes the head of the femur and pulls it into the top of the socket that way, right? Now, hamstrings pulls it up into the top of the socket, piriformis pushes it in and anteriorly. So now I get impaction between the head of the femur and the, the cup, the acetabulum, which then gets bone on bone. And there's a lot of young players, like uh, I have a Warriors goal, they had bilateral hip surgery over the summer just because of this issue. Impaction from a lack of range of motion because they're not 
focusing on their mobility enough. Um, a lot of these guys, like stretching, it's like, oh, I'll do that later. The reality is the stretching is primary. If you don't have full range of motion around a joint, you don't have full power around a joint. You don't have full explosion around a joint. It matters. And then you're also taking your body, your discontinuous tension of your bones, and you're impacting them, which is going to shorten your career. Mm-hmm. Right? It can shorten it before you ever get a university scholarship. Can, there's numerous players that had their career shortened at the show level because of issues like this. Now, normal range of motion for internal rotation is 45 degrees. External, minimum 60, ideally 90. Straight leg range, 90 degrees. That's normal average range of motion. If you can't get there, well, then I'd probably focus on the positional average of that. And use muscle energy, use a towel. I have what I call five damn things. It's on a couple other podcasts. There's some videos there. I can send out a couple sheets to, to you, Jason, you can share with people that way too. Um, where you, it's, you do the five damn things, you rotate your own hip. Um, and the four muscle energy techniques, all of a sudden you get literally internal rotation improves by 15 to 30 degrees just from four simple muscle energy stretches. Because if, if you look at internal rotation specifically, if I stretch my glute, I stretch my hamstring, right? And then I stretch glute and hamstrings, the head of the femur and piriformis, the head of the femur instantly drops out of the socket just from the muscles relaxing. And then I can internally rotate. And it's not magic. It's just muscle energy. Yeah. All you've done is turned off the muscle spindles in the guard until the joint relaxes. And it sounds super important. <laughs> uh, it's massively important. It's like, so if I had a pie and my pie was me as a totally athletic individual, well, one third is cardiovascular strength and endurance, which is aerobic, anaerobic, all the other stuff. Another third is musculoskeletal endurance and strength, which is equally important. Then I have another third, which is proprioception, body awareness, mobility, motility, motricity equally important all parts matter and you, you don't just eat one piece of the pie you eat it all right right and the training should be rounded that way and so what you're saying i wrote here like static versus dynamic stretching like is and sometimes people overthink everything and then they when they overthink it they just don't do it you know because they don't know if they're doing it right or doing it wrong like is is there a wrong way to do it is there a right way to do it or is it just well static okay so put it this way muscle energy is is, is not static nor dynamic it's a separate beast on its own dynamic stretching is when you're going through athletic based movements holding an end range for three seconds max dynamic is done before you play sport because you're waking up your joints you're waking up your proprioceptors but you're not trying to loosen tissue so say i'm going to go for a run and then i sit there and i stretch my peroneals for 30 to 60 seconds before i run well when you read the literature i'm actually significantly higher risk for rolling ankle on that run now so dynamics done beforehand because we're trying to loosen the joints secrete some synovial fluid into those encapsulized joints so it has some has some lubrication and then wake up the proprioceptor so they understand where they are static stretching is done immediately after activity when i have all of my blood flow so my muscles are the warmest they're the most distensible now i can stretch for flexibility immediately when i'm done not after i get in the car ride home get a chill from all the sweat in my gear get home munch some food eat this and then sit down when i've got cold muscles that are like trying to stretch a, a metal rod versus you know trying to stretch a string gotcha right and a lot of guys miss out they go to the change room they get changed and then they've been working these legs super hard then they go ride in the car in a seated position well good news your body now wants to stay in a seated position when you stand and that's when you're torturing yourself out gotcha like, so for me listening to this conversation and bringing two things together it sounds like training this level two um fat burning system would be a, a great way that you could do daily ride for 40 minutes and once you're done riding do your stretching static stretching for whatever 20 or and uh, you well, have a great road routine there 
Totally. I mean, I would, I would probably say, you know what, you can never do enough when it comes to stretching. Right. That's what I would say, because we as human beings, I mean, even parents out there, I bet you're like, I can put my foot and my knee on a table and I can drop my other knee down to the floor and I'm 46 years old and I'm a bendy man and I'm big. Yeah. Right? You can have it both, but you got to focus on it. I would say it's equal. You can yeah. stretch for 40 minutes. Why not? If you're watching TV and your ass is on the floor, stretch. Yeah. Right? I would argue this way. If you're watching a movie or TV, your butt should be on the floor stretching. It's the only way you should be allowed to watch TV. Right. Yeah, right. I agree. I right. see that all the time, especially with the kids in their gaming or whatever. You can definitely multi uh, multitask with that. Well, I got another call here, and you've been amazing. Um, thanks for asking all my all my questions. And um, and yeah, well, this is what is it? My goodness, two hours and twenty minutes of uh, of a lot of of science and a lot of talk that I think is really practical for uh, for players out there. At least I was trying to make it practical. I hope hope everybody was able to take that away from you. But uh, James, wealth of knowledge. Uh, thanks again for your work with Hudson. Uh, you know how much we appreciated that and uh, and everything you do for the community here and also for my community. Thanks so much for being here today. No worries. Thanks so much. And like I said, I'm happy to come back and do a Q&A where people can ask me specific questions anytime. Um, and if people, they have a question, reach out. I do respond. I mean, I get emails from all over Canada. And I do respond to them. So just send me a note and I'll answer your question. I may use big words and try and confuse you just for fun, but I'll answer you. <laughs> awesome. All right. Till next time. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you for so much, so much for sticking around, listening to that entire episode with James. Uh, I know it was not boring for me having the conversation. I cannot imagine it was boring for you. Obviously, it wasn't if you're still listening. Uh, so much information to unpack, so many things to think about, so many things to walk away with uh, and think about how can you apply this or how can I use this? Maybe it, maybe it affects you right now. Maybe you have a player that is recovering from a from a concussion and maybe no one's looked at their alignment maybe nobody's gone and checked to see how the uh how the atlas is uh as as james called called that piece underneath your your skull that's holding it there and uh there's so many things that i was not aware of uh when hudson my oldest was was going through uh, a really nasty patch last year with what we thought was concussion after concussion and dark rooms and lights bothering him and headaches and all the rest of it and uh, and it really was uh, one trip to manual osteopath James and got him sorted out and he's been great ever since. So um, I'm just wishing that that is the story that might apply to your situation, whether it is now or whether it's in the future and now being armed with this type of knowledge, at least you know to ask the right questions. Um, again, I am not a doctor. I am not diagnosing anything. I'm not saying concussions don't exist. Neither is James. He's just saying that, you know what, we need to check alignment before we automatically say it's concussion and we go through all the steps of that. So be aware. And I think we are in better spot for it. Um, again, back to the Q and a, if you have a question about today's episode, uh, email James, james at wendland.ca or myself, jason at myhockey.com. We will be most likely hosting a Q&A inside the parent group uh, if we do get feedback, obviously, and if people want to know more. Uh, James has been so kind as to volunteer his time and get those questions answered. Um, so many other good things, obviously, within that episode. I think uh, I think the more you know, we're we're more we're in a better spot with the more that we understand. You know, when it, whether it be an athlete and you're curious as an athlete about what is out there, what is what maybe am I missing? What am I not thinking about? Uh, when we get curious about our own development and our own journey, now we start to get new answers. And I think that there is a lot of new answers there today. And um, yeah, just be curious, be engaged. It's one of the things that I teach.
is that curiosity is gold. It can totally help you. It helps you with engagement. It helps you with passion. It helps you with a lot of things. Uh, but you have to be able to ask questions. You have to be brave enough to do that. So uh, awesome stuff, guys. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, play hard and keep your head up.